Go. Okay, hello everyone. Thank you very much for coming to today's AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section E Town Hall meeting uh, on Saturday, uh, March 20th. Uh, today we have a, a great uh, guest speaker, uh, a very exciting topic, and uh, we'll know more about uh, his research activity. Uh, and uh, uh, this is very inspiring. Okay, so this is general schedule. We kind of a few minutes late, but we'll catch up. It's a little bit flexible, so we'll. Uh, I'll catch up uh, the, the schedule, don't worry. <clears throat> so just a few words. And uh, we actually have been trying to work on, you know, some events related to gravity, you know, warp drive. We have few talks and we try to get a legal person, uh, you know, the gravity interferometry people from Caltech, but, you know, kind of uh, postponed. Uh, and uh, so we actually have been very interested in this topic, uh, the quantum gravity universe, you know, uh, astrophysics. Uh, basically, we, with this event we're doing is to inspire people. Uh, it's not intended to sell certain kind of product or theory, but it's kind of people understand what's going on, state of the arts, and uh, get inspired and uh, uh, networking each other. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so before the event, we have some uh, logistics. First, we thank the AIWA headquarters, the nation office, who provide the uh, platform, the Zoom, which is actually very expensive, so really highly appreciated. Um, <clears throat> so this, this session will be recorded, so it will be posted online, and thanks to our spe speaker, Mr. Stuart Mar Maronway, uh, who will uh, permit us to do so. Uh, so during the process, if you somehow, because internet, it got, you got disconnected, please keep trying to reconnect. Uh, it could be just temporary. Uh, the audio, if you have bandwidth, is limited, you can try to call in and uh, just use the internet for uh, seeing, viewing the slides or, or camera video, but you can call, dial in uh, to, <clears throat> uh, to reduce the bandwidth load on the internet. Um, one, one thing is it, it generally this event are for networking, but to protect the privacy, people won't know you are in the meeting uh, for the attendees. If we want to let people know you are here and I want to chat with people, please utilize the uh, chat box. And uh, there's a Q&A box, which the speaker uh, can view uh, the question. Uh, so you're welcome to type your question in the Q&A box. And uh, more toward the end of the talk, uh, if you raise your hand, we can mute you and you can speak out uh, directly to the speaker and uh, ask questions. Uh, so if you're concerned about the security and privacy, Zoom has approved, improved a lot. Uh, but please don't talk about any uh, national security or personal information. Uh, and if you're concerned about the Zoom app, you can uh, try to dial in. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so just try to, and just a few words about uh, Southern California. Uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a, we are blessed to, uh, to be in this area because heavily aerospace populated. And we are just chatting with the speaker, uh, Mr. Maron Wee. That's uh, the Space Web Telescope is a great example for what is going to talk about today's astrophysics. And uh, it's great work by the engineers. It's a very big uh, project. Uh, it's going to be launched uh, pretty soon. And uh, we also here, we have a defense contractor making the fighter jet. Uh, and uh, also the, uh, the new trend, sustainable aviation, electric uh, uh, hybrid hydrogen, biofuel, and then we have just have the Mars 2020 Perseverance landing, you know, on Mars, very exciting. And we have a lot of experts, space debris, actually defense, uh, mining, space tourism. <clears throat> of course, we have SpaceX, 
very exciting and, uh, and a lot of students doing great projects. Uh, so just a few words about Black History Month because last week, and this is with the permission from our speaker today because to this, this event as the uh, uh, Black History Month event, it's actually February because, but, you know, because we plan this event during February, but uh, we just have to find the schedule in March. And in, in January, we have a, a great ceremony event for Dr. Martin Luther King uh, on January 18. So we had to respect, you know, uh, the uh, African American or um, uh, the uh, Africans or all the people, minorities. So we have been doing all the event to uh, with the minority speakers and uh, to empower, encourage minorities. Uh, so this is uh, we uh, under this is just a little history, you know, Mr. Wilson, and uh, this is a history of this uh, Black History Month. So we highly honor and respect, and will. Uh, continue to promote the professionalism among all the uh, uh, ethnic groups and, uh, uh, and the regions. So a few words about the AIAA is a great organization, the leading organization promoting aerospace. And then once you join the membership online, you can immediately um, <clears throat> uh, enjoy the AIAA Engage. You can chat with the member worldwide, post your question or resume or anything. You can start to uh, network with uh, professionals. <clears throat> and uh, we regularly do events like today or different things to inspire people. Uh, it's uh, for social networking and uh, uh, doesn't really have, uh, you know, has to be detailed technical discussion, but it's meant to inform and inspire people. Uh, so you can see our links <clears throat> there. And uh, so this next Saturday, we have exciting, you know, space architecture. Uh, you know, events, and then we have an event talking about people LGBTQ and uh, minority uh, gender, sex, you know, minorities in, in uh, aerospace. And uh, we have the um, uh, anniversary for the first space shuttle and uh, the you know, space shuttle program. And uh, that, uh, we regularly do this event to inspire, encourage people to uh, uh, do a very good job, you know, to get interested. And uh, membership is an important part of the uh, AIAA. And uh, we have different type of membership educator. If you are STEM K-12 educator is free. And uh, this is the information of our membership chair, Aldo Martinez. And uh, AWA just announced the new high school uh, membership, which is very exciting, it's free. So uh, we are exploring the uh, opportunities. So, uh, you know, we our STEM K-12 outreach chair, who, who is res responsible for, you know, uh, in the classroom, uh, school outreach, uh, provide project, uh, you know, uh, uh, puzzle pride project or inspire student classroom. Uh, so this uh, Ms. Kushpu Patel is our uh, current uh, outreach chair, K-12. And we also do national uh, forum conferences. Uh, so we have aviation, propulsion, energy, defense, ascent is more for space and the SciTech and uh, big digital pandemic. So uh, the August uh, forum is, you know, virtual. So this is just a couple of pictures, you know, what we have been doing, you know, with professionals, Mars landing, 2020 landing, uh, the Raspberry Pi, and uh, sustainable. This is a national level event with two Airbnb fellow and several company leaders. And this was the students, university students. <clears throat> just give you a good idea to encourage you. This is the event last week talking about building Hyperloop um, in California and also uh, in space. <laughs> so it's very exciting that we even talk about 
Uh, this is a sci-fi series, Space 99, the Eagles, how this participate in the moon or Mars space uh, build building. Uh, it's very exciting. And uh, so today we are a uh, uh, great pleasure to have Mr. Stuart uh, Maronwi. Uh, he's a, uh, he's a science, scientific director of Deep Time Technologies and Tutume uh, Boswana. Uh, we are chatting actually the aerospace has been rapidly uh, developing uh, in, in Africa and uh, we're actually just chatting the Rwanda has the uh, CubeSat going to be launched in the South Africa school program. Uh, he basically has a degree uh, from, you know, uh, in physics and also he studied, you know, uh, um, you know, electrical and electronic engineering. And uh, he specialized in quantum gravity and so physics, very, very exciting. And uh, he's going to share with us about this uh, uh, probing quantum gravity through astrophysical observation. Uh, he has been, um, <clears throat> have very great experience in telemetry system, as physics teacher, lecturer, research fellow, uh, and now scientific director. So it's, it's really, and uh, you can see a lot of credential here, publications, and uh, as, as we are, um, you know, we've seen a member always said, you know, even for student, you know, write up something and publish is, is a good thing, you know, that's very for professional, it's a very important part of, 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 of the, the life. So let's welcome Mr. Stuart Maronwi uh, for this great presentation today. Yeah, so it's yours. All right, thank you, Ken. Great pleasure. Uh, thank you, Ken, for that wonderful introduction. I would like to also to thank the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, section for inviting me to give this talk on feasible warp speed from quantum gravity. It's an honor indeed, thank you. I would also like to welcome the audience that is joining us for this talk. And I would like to inform them that this talk will include equations. These equations are important for us to understand the structure of space-time and how to manipulate it. So I'll try my best to explain these equations so that no one feels lost in the math. So our talk will be as, as follows. First, we will look into the historical context and motivation for warp speed. Then we proceed to conceptual foundations of space-time gravity and the quantum vacuum. These concepts will help us build a theory of quantum gravity, which we will test with astrophysical observations. If we find these uh, observations are in agreement with theory, we proceed to design feasible warp speeds from this quantum theory. I will later discuss about aerospace science and education in Africa, just brief about that. And then we go to questions. Right, so this talk is about feasible warp speeds. Uh, excuse me. That my... Excuse me. Uh, some attendee mentioned when you are not uh, point out something on the slide, could you move the mouse away from this, uh, the slide area? Okay, thank you. Yeah, but but if you are going to point out something, that's fine. But once you finish point out something, could you move it outside the slide? All right, sure, no problem. With that. Thank you. So at this moment in, in time, we could be asking ourselves, feasible warp speed. 
can't these things supposed to be impossible given our current level of science and technology? Now, to answer a question about impossible tasks, we only need to look at some of our leaders in human history who have overcome seemingly impossible situations. People like Nelson Mandela. He's telling us from, from the past that it always seems impossible until it is done. We have also people like Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, yeah. Mahatma Gandhi. We also have people like Albert Einstein and the founding fathers of the United States of America. So we ask ourselves, what do they all have in common that allowed them to overcome such impossible situations? Now, if we look closely, we will find that they were guided by a set of fundamental principles, which they called universal principles. And of course, they are imaginary. For example, the founding fathers of the United States constructed the Constitution of the United States guided by a set of fundamental principles, which they called universal principles, and a vision of the new republic, which means they had a good imagination. So that is all what it takes to reach for the stars a set of fundamental principles and a great imagination. So right now let's ask ourselves, where are we coming from? Now as early human communities, we survived on in-situ resource civilization. That is, we survived off the land. And when these resources were depleted or harder to get, we simply had to migrate or we had to adapt, that is to transform from hunter-gatherers into agricultural-based communities. As we built cities and villages, we had to mitigate, that is we had to formulate rules and regulations on resource utilization. We also had to improve resource extraction technology. That is, we had to invent better hunting techniques, better farming techniques, better transport and communication technology. And this cycle was repeated over millennia, migration, adaptation, mitigation, improvements or advances in technology. And so where are we now? We are currently consuming our resources at a suicidal pace. The current rate of consumption requires at least 1.38 planets to remain sustainable. That's not all. If all countries were to elevate their consumption rates to the same rate as industrialized nations, we will need no less than 12 eight-sized planets. These uh, footprints can be calculated from a lot of uh, carbon footprints calculated on, on, on the web. So we ask ourselves, where are we heading? And the answer to this question comes from none other than Carl Sagan, who tells us that all civilizations become either spacefaring or extinct. Now, extinction is not an option, so which means we are going interstellar. Now, interstellar has these challenges. The challenges of interstellar migration are deep space and deep Take, for instance, the nearest star system to us is Proxima Centauri, which is 4.2 light years 
away from the sun. It will take our current rocket technology based on chemicals at least 70,000 to 100,000 years to reach Proxima Centauri. And we are not guaranteed that we will find an Earth-sized planet there. And in order to find 12 Earth-like planets, we will need a larger region to scout, which means we'll need faster than light speed. But the laws of physics prohibit us from moving faster than light. But this has never deterred imaginative and creative people people to find a way around the speed of light. For example, we have wormholes or Einstein Rosen bridges. These were first proposed by Einstein and Rosen in 1935. Wormholes connect a distant section of the universe by a tunnel that exists in a hypothetical one-dimensional plane. So that is, for example, if I want to move from there, instead of moving right around this way, I can move directly through this tunnel. So that is the wormhole. They also require two black holes to be created. Another method is the Alcubierre type warp drive. Now, Alcubierre warp drives were proposed by Miguel Alcubierre in 1994 and further developed by others. This requires a means of placing a strip inside a bubble of flat space and stretching the space behind it while contracting the space in front. Superluminal speeds, that is speeds faster than light can be achieved this way because space itself can move faster than the speed of light. But these proposals have problems. For example, warm walls are not practical. They require huge energy densities to create and exotic negative energies to keep them open. Possible since they will collapse to enter one. So this normal solution is not practical. We need practical solutions. We, we look at our QBL type warp drives. They are also not practical. The bubbles require huge energy densities to operate as well as negative energies. And to add uh, further problems, they cannot be operated from within. You need to prefabricate a highway to operate a Alcubierre warp drive, which means you need another Alcubierre warp drive to create an Alcubierre warp drive, and that's not practical. It also does not explain exactly how superluminal velocity is achieved. Other types of other researchers have tried to reduce the energy requirements, but still, these uh, Alcubierre type warp drives are not practical. Another notable feature about Alcubierre warp drives is that most people assume that general relativity is the final word on gravity. Yet it is well understood in physics that general relativity does not work well with quantum phenomena and predicts singularity. Now, once a theory predicts singularities, which means it's incomplete, it needs improvement. So what is needed is a technological revolution. How can we come up with a new technological revolution in aerospace? A technological revolution can only come up when we discover new laws of nature. Clearly, we need a deeper understanding of the fundamental structure of space-time, which can be found in a self-consistent theory of quantum gravity. To achieve this understanding, we need to start from our current well-tested theories of gravity, 
that is general relativity and quantum field theory, and hope to find the nexus of these two pillars of modern physics. Now, in order to find the nexus, we need some clues. We can get clues from none other than Albert Einstein. Although he's not physically with us, his ideas and, and thoughts are still in our collective human consciousness. He's telling us that space and time and gravitation have no separate existence from matter. Now, Albert Einstein was a person guided by principles. So this statement is coming from what is known as Max principles, which states that space-time can never have an, an existence without matter. In order for space to be there, there has to be matter. We are going to use this principle further on. So what is general relativity range? General relativity is the theory of gravity that describes gravity as a warping of space-time due to the presence of matter. So this is the equation that is describing this. This left side describes the curvature and the right side describes the source of that curvature. So just like I said before, I will try to explain what each term here is trying to tell us. The first term is telling us about the curvature. The second term is trying to tell us about the stretching of space-time. The third term is telling us about an inherent energy inside space-time that causes it to stretch. We now currently call this dark energy. And this last term is the source of the curvature. It's called the stress energy momentum tensor. And in this case, it's the Earth that is curving the space-time, resulting in the moon orbiting around it. And those indices mu and nu, they are just describing the components of space-time. The zero is usually for time, and one, two, three are for the spatial dimension. So the Einstein equation can be reduced to this form. And we can interpret, uh, and this uh, term here can be reduced to an Einstein constant called the kappa. So we can read the equation. For example, this equation is with zero in the indices is referring to the slowing or increase in, in the passage of time due to the presence of energy and energy density, this energy density. And this equation, where this zero refers to time and this one refers to a spatial dimension, is telling is referring to the bending of time towards a spatial dimension due to the presence of an energy momentum density. T01. Now, Einstein's equations are best understood in their vacuum form. Here we have removed stress energy momentum tensor, so this is empty space. So, what Einstein's equations are telling us that straight lines in curved space time meet, and this vacuum equation is called a De Sitter space, where this constant lambda is equal to this equation, where H sub zero is Hubble's constant. Now, there's another concept that I need to introduce. It's called the Ricci flow, or best known as the Hamiltonian Ricci flow. It shows how the time evolution of the metric, what I mean by that is that how 
space-time evolves, how the expansion is evolving in time. And this is the equation. Now I've circled this part of the conversion term. In most equations, you never find this. It took me some time to find this uh, conversion term because most physicists are interested in the structure of an equation. They are hardly interested in, in sometimes they're not interested in the conversion coefficients. That's why they use natural units where they reduce most of the constants to value of one. I had to work, if you find in my earlier publications, this conversion term is absent. I had to work about three years to find it. But once I found it, I found that it's easier actually to get. Basically, it's trying to tell us about that space-time is diffusing, it's a diffusion coefficient. Right, so with time, the rigid flow is telling us that the separation between the object and their place of origin expands and the space between the object increases. So what are we saying in synthesis? Empty space is the sitter space and is associated with an energy we call dark energy. Now, let's recall for Mark's principle, okay? Mark was telling us that space-time is independent, cannot live an existence that is independent of matter. So this vacuum energy or mass is a charge associated with or generating the sitter space. It's just like a magnet is associated with a magnetic field. This energy density is associated with the space-time field. We shall call this quantum of energy that is associated with, with space-time, the nexus graviton, because we are trying to look for the nexus between the concepts of general relativity and quantum field theory. So we can apply the uncertainty principle to find uh, more properties about this. If we apply this equation of, of from the uncertainty principle, we end up having post times, space times time, delta t, delta x. This is the uncertainty in time, the uncertainty in space, or this is the space that is generated. Now, if this space, delta x, is the size of the Hubble radius, and this time delta t is the length of the Hubble time. We can reduce the, the, this part to this form. And then we can find the force associated with this space time by reducing this, uh, the right hand side to this form. We end up getting force is equal to ma, which we know from Newton's law. So this implies that m is the mass of the graviton, which is the Planck constant times the Hubble constant divided by the speed of light squared. And the graviton-induced acceleration is the Hubble constant multiplied by the speed of light divided by two pi. Now, interestingly, this acceleration is equal to Milgram's acceleration constant in Mons, which has been empirically observed in galaxies. So this hint this is the hint that dark matter is also a manifestation of quantum gravity. So these are the hints that we are getting from what we have just understood from uh, general relativity. And I've highlighted Max principle and the uncertainty principle to show that we are now being guided by principles in order to advance in our knowledge of quantum gravity.
Now, let's look at quantum field theory. And one person to, to explain to us about quantum field theory would be Richard Feynman. He says that I think I can safely say nobody understands quantum mechanics. Now, what is he saying? Feynman is telling us that we understand the math of quantum mechanics or quantum field theory, but we do not understand what it is actually telling us about reality. I think the problem stems from the fact that quantum mechanics itself was developed from mathematics. Unlike general relativity, which was guided by physical principles, quantum mechanics was guided by mathematics. And therefore, it's now difficult to find interpretation of quantum mechanics. So what is quantum field theory? Quantum field theory describes matter and forces as a set of superimposed quantum fields whose values may vary from point to point. And crucially, this year is happening in flat space. It combines classical field theory, quantum mechanics, and special relativity. Particles and force quanta, that is packets of force, can be created and annihilated in a time governed by the uncertainty principle. It predicts strange phenomena such as quantum entanglement, in which two particles separated by light years can be affected. One can be affected by the observation of the other. It's a strange phenomenon that defies all logical explanation. Perhaps we might find the explanation in quantum gravity. As I said before, because quantum field theory was founded on mathematics. There are multiple interpretations of physical meaning of these equations. So we are still trying to find what is quantum field theory trying to say, tell to us. So this is one of the important equations in quantum mechanics. It is the Dirac equation of a fermion, that is particles of matter. Quantum mechanics describes the motion of subatomic particles in flat space time as a traveling wave of probability. Already, this is uh, a deviation from classical mechanics because the classical mechanics is non probabilistic in nature, especially when it's dealing with a single particle. But here we are finding that a particle is a probabilistic distribution. For example, in this case, a particle is described as a wave packet. And if you leave it somewhere, let's say stationary or nearly stationary, you'll find that with time, it's, it's probability, the probability of finding it where you left it is, is diminishing. And it can be found in a large section or at almost everywhere at once. So the other thing that is happening, the wave packet spreads out in space, the localization, the localizing space in, in, in time. But could it be that its locality is expanding? Okay? It's not that the particle is moving in space, but it's the space itself that is expanding, diminishing the probability of finding the particle where you left it. The equation describing the time evolution of the wave packet is actually identical to the Ricci flow that I mentioned earlier. It's also equal, identical to the heat equation 
and to the diffusion equation. Now we come to the nexus paradigm. Now this is a preview of what to expect. An apple in extreme gravity would appear fuzzy according to the nexus paradigm. So we are now collecting the concepts that we have learned from general relativity and quantum field theory to come up with a, a quantum theory of gravity. Now, what we observe is that general relativity is preferably interpreted as a theory of straight lines in space time. And yet, Einstein's field equation can also be interpreted as curved lines in flat space time. By adopting, adopting this later interpretation, we can start embarking on an alternative path to quantum gravity. Since quantum field theory is a theory built on flat space time and there's curved lines that appear some over histories in the Feynman interpretation of quantum field theory. Moreover, the rigid tensor in general relativity is the average of possible paths a test particle can take in a gravitational field. So we are seeing some similarity here, but now we are converting general relativity not from a curved space-time, but to a flat space-time in which there are no straight lines, but curved lines. So do we have evidence of a flat space-time? Yes. There are various independent observations by different research groups such as WMAP, Boomerang, Planck, and Boss that show that space-time is indeed flat. So let's start building the quantum theory of gravity. So we think of a flat space-time. Okay, so I'm here, I'm just I've just chosen one dimension of that space-time. It could be time, it could be a, x, y, or z, but now we think of that dimension as an infinite line, okay? Now, in physics, there's nothing like infinity. Infinity is unphysical in physics. We don't use infinity. So this is meaningless to a physicist. We've got minus infinity that side and plus infinity on the right, and it has no physical meaning. So we try the next step. Let's put a point in space. Do we have some physics from this? No, we don't have physics. Goes to the left side, there's an infinite value, and to the right, there's still an infinite value. So it's still unphysical. Okay, let's try the next thing. Let's put a point next to that other point. Now we have physics. Suppose we put a gap between these two points that is measurable. It's called a gauge. We have a gauge, something that we can measure. So we are now in flat space time. We have a, a difference between two points. We have a difference between these two points, and that is what we want to measure in physics. So we are in flat space time, and in this space time, which is called the Minkowski space, the Pythagoras theorem, the one that we know from high school, is written in this form. This in mathematics is called the inner product, but it's basically Pythagoras theorem. So this delta x or delta y are local coordinates, which means they are talking about this gap. We can now ignore these points because these points are not physical because they, they are zero. They are just marking boundaries of the local coordinates. Now, I look at the right-hand side of Pythagoras theorem in this part. I can split it into its roots. 
in this form, okay? Now, in order for this right-hand side to be identical to this right-hand side, it means these coefficients that I think must comply with the following rules, A, B plus B, A is equal to zero, and A squared is equal to B squared, which is equal, identical to one. Now, this behavior is called people algebra. So we are in a space-time that follows rules of tripod algebra, okay? And it is found that these coefficients A, B, B, A are actually not coefficients by matrices called Dirac matrices and they obey this commutation rule, okay? And they show that they are in this parameter shows that it's flat space time. Another aspect of this space is that these uh, local coordinates are endowed with a constant rotational motion and quantized spin. So what I'm saying is this, uh, the local coordinates have a, a rotational motion that is associated with them and a spin associated with them, okay? Now let's look further into this uh, gap. This is the measurement that we are taking. It is zero elsewhere, but there where we want it to be in the local coordinates. We can represent this as a pulse, okay? And a pulse can be represented using the Fourier integral. So this pulse of this is a pulse of space-time which can be represented in a Fourier integral. Okay? And this Fourier integral can be reduced to this for easier manipulation. Where the coefficients are this coefficient here is reduced to this form. And we have this equation. We will give it, we will tell, I'll tell you its name in a moment. So we also have this gauge that we found. This gauge cannot be like from minus infinity to plus infinity again. We need to have it have a maximum finite value. So we look to physics. Where do we can we get a natural large finite value of the dimension delta x? Or we find that the Hubble radius, we cannot measure anything beyond the Hubble radius. So which makes delta x the maximum radius of our space-time. And we also have to find a minimum because if we reduce this gap to zero, we end up with a point again. It must have a minimum dimension. Now, a minimum dimension in physics is known. It is the Planck length. Below that, a black hole is forming. You can never measure anything. A black hole is formed below Planck length. So we can say the maximum dimension of our gauge is of our local coordinates is the Hubble radius and the minimum is the Planck uh, length. Now, as I said before that the, each of the local coordinates, the local coordinates or the local patch of space-time is associated with a spin. The Hubble radius in this case is associated with the spin, maximum spin speed or speed of light. And if we are not this value, which means the the rotational speeds of, of smaller patches of space-time can be calculated from this form, which can be reduced via this translation into Hubble's law, okay? So what am I saying about this space? It is endowed with 
with, with a spin, with a rotational motion. And you can calculate this rotational velocity using the Hubble law. And each local coordinate is quantized radar, okay? These radii are in to be multiples of the Planck length. They can never be below, you can never have a value that is in between a Planck length. It must be multiples of a Planck length. So there's wave functions, wave, wave functions that we alluded to earlier are called block energy eigenstate functions. They are globally and locally symmetric, okay? So this is part describes the local behavior and this part describes the global behavior. Because these waves are confined to a, a locality delta x, the wave vector, this value k, can only assume quantized values, okay? It can only assume quantized values and the maximum is 10 to the power of six. This 10 to the power of six comes from the ratio of the Hubble radius to the Planck length. Now, like we had said before, each local coordinate is supposed to be associated with, a, with an energy in it. And this is the conjugate momentum, okay? So this conjugate momentum is the energy of space itself, just like we learned about dark energy. They, this energy is in the form of what are known as virtual particles. So these are particles that appear and disappear in space according to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, okay? Now in this space time that we have just uh, found out, this law, is a way of nature to borrow a fermion, a particle with half spin, okay? This is how nature borrows from the vacuum a particle with half spin. Now, if nature wants to borrow a boson, that is a, a force carrier, such as a photon, a W boson, a Z boson, a gluon, it uses this formula. We are usually familiar with this one, but this one is a new one where bosons, the space, nature itself borrows bosons using this formula. This one is stemming from the four components of space itself. So if it wants to borrow a, grav a graviton, which is a spin two particle, the spins are aligned up and the maximum value is two eight, two, uh, the minimum spin in nature. For particles such as gluons, uh, photons, and W bosons, the spin is one. All it needs is to one of the components to have its spin down. It will cancel out another one, and the net spin is zero. For bosons such as the Higgs, we need to have some components having the spin down, some having the spin up such that the total spin is zero. Okay, so this is how nature is doing at a fundamental level. So we are trying to, what we are trying to do is, is to see what is happening at the fundamental level. We have found that there's a space time that obeys Clifford algebra and that the local coordinates or small displacement vectors, they 
they are associated with a spin and that each local coordinate is also associated with some momentum, which is inherent in space itself and comes from virtual particles. So now, if we look, if we want to calculate the energy of the effect graviton, we can simply use this formula. And knowing that the maximum radius is, is the Hubble radius, we can reduce the graviton for momentum or the momentum that is associated with the graviton into this equation. And we find that this part can be reduced into a form related to the cosmological constant that we found in the Zeta space. And then we find that its final value is n squared lambda. So each local coordinate in space can be described by this term. And this term, we can input it in the, in the vacuum equation where we have the Einstein tensor. This describes something of this form a packet of space, a spherical symmetric wave packet of space time that has got virtual energy in it that is generating a space time. So what are we saying? We have virtual matter generating a, wave, a packet of space time. So this is dark matter. It is an intrinsic compactification of elements of space time. And Using the Ricci equation, we can see the time evolution of this wave packet. If it has high energies, it quickly extinguishes. Because n is very high. Imagine up to the values of 10 to the power of 60 or 10 to the power of 40, it quickly disappears. But the low energy ones, where n is small, they last longer. And we shall see later that they also have strong gravity. It will lead to what is known as asymptotic freedom in quantum gravity. So we have a high energy graviton for high energy localities in space that quickly appear and disappear. But now, if in this theory or in this space time, time can also assume negative value. If I put time negative here, this becomes positive which means we can now have patches of space-time that expand. These patches must have their time in a negative direction. They will expand and generate what are known as dark voids. These are regions where space-time is expanding and particles of matter are pushed away from that space-time. So we can consider dark voids. These have been uh, observed. They are there. And they don't they don't have contained matter in them or very few matter. They are the opposite of dark matter in which the graviton time inside is positive, has a positive indice. Now, dark energy arises from this patch of space or the dark matter emitting the ground state graviton, okay? And then we end up having a, the Einstein's vacuum equations in this form. Remember the old ones, the old Einstein vacuum equations, they didn't have this n squared, they had just this part only. Now we have added a, a term n squared minus one, n squared, sorry, and 
This was the term before. Now we have included n squared. So what is happening here? The patches of space-time that are appearing, they borrow energy from the vacuum, but then they retain it in very small amount using, they retain it using this minimum energy that they can. But as they donate this energy back to the vacuum, as they release this energy, they lower their energy state and expand, which means uh, like, like we saw previously, if the energy borrowed from the vacuum is less, the patch of space-time is larger. So whenever they return energy to the vacuum, they, become, they begin to expand. They expand and this is, they, 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 they end up becoming up to the edge of the universe. They expand up to the size of the universe by releasing one graviton at a time, one minimum graviton at a time. Now, these are Einstein's vacuum equations. If we want to include the perturbations caused by the stress momentum tensor, then the full Einstein equations are, are this. So this is the full Einstein equation. Einstein equation was only missing this n squared. So what are we describing here? We are saying that uh, space-time has got energy states from one to 10 to the power of 60. These are energy levels of space-time. Space-time is not just one fabric, but it's got energy levels. Now, these field equations, since we are dealing with flat space-time, these field equations can be interpreted as having curved both lines in flat space-time. So what we are saying in this space-time that we are describing, nothing moves in a straight line, even in the absence of baronic matter, that's the matter that we see. Nothing moves in straight line in empty space. Everything moves in curved lines. So for the nexus graviton in the nth quantum state, this Einstein's equation can be given to get this semi-classical solution for Einstein's equation for the graviton in the nth state. That is that patch of space-time in the nth quantum state. We get this solution. What is this solution telling us? That as n increases, this space-time becomes the, 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 the curves in that space-time become straight. Remember, we were saying that this space-time, this flat space-time only has curved lines. But as the energy increases, the curved lines become straight. And as the energy is lowered, the curved lines become more curved until we get to n equal to one. At n equal to one, this is something strange happens. This graviton is a metric signature that is negative compared to the others, which means time in it moves in reverse. The space and time, they have got reversed roles. The time in this, uh, Graviton is in the neg is negative is flowing negative. Now, what we are describing here as a as a as a dark matter can also be considered as a rich soliton. Now, this equation is called these equations in mathematicians call it compact Einstein manifold. Okay, they are also called solitons or Localized lumps of vacuum energy. That's what a soliton is. 
a localized lamp of vacuum energy. And what does it do? do it preserves its form while growing or diminishing, which means that sphere can maintain its shape when it expands or contracts. It preserves its speed and form after collision with another solution. Now, this brings to mind what is happening in what is known as the bullet cluster, where two galactic clusters are colliding and dark matter seems to pass through the ordinary matter and, 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 and change really. And it, because it's a soliton, it's a soliton, it preserves its speed and form after a collision with another soliton. Other features, this part where if I increase n to infinity and it comes straight, is called asymptotic freedom, which means at high energies, there's no curvature or strong gravity. So these high energy gravitons are actually straight lines, short straight lines, very short straight lines, like comparable to the Planck lens, as you increase the energy. So as you increase the energies, they, they, straight, they become straight, not curved uh, world lines. So there's no strong gravity with high energy gravity. They don't exceed gravity. Now, this equation also shows that the value of n can only be one, so there's no singularity, okay? And the ground state has a negative metric signature, okay? So the full Einstein equation that we found where we include now the n squared can be found in my, in my works that the solution to this equation is of this form, okay? So this part is now uh, the Newton, Newton's part, Newton's law. Now this part is the rot is an acceleration induced by the gravity in the nth state. Remember, there's a rotational motion associated with a patch of space-time of a given dimension. There's a rotational motion associated, with, and in this case, is Vn. Now the last part is the rotational motion or a, an acceleration associated with dark energy because it has the negative metric signature. It can't have a positive like the others who are above the n equal to one uh, graviton has negative metric signature. So now we have Newton's law is, is, is now has these components. These components are hardly visible at solar system level because the value of h is 10 to the power of minus 18. These components at local level in, in the solar system, you cannot uh, observe it, observe this phenomenon. It needs sensitive instrument to detect this. So that's why Newton's law is valid in the local system, in the local solar system. But now non-Newtonian dynamics will start occurring when this part, you see the negative part and the Newtonian component, they cancel out. When GMR, GM over R squared is equal to HC over two pi. We end up the weak field solution. This one reduces to this form from which we, we obtain the following equation. These are equations of galactic cosmic evolution. Both this, this uh, cancellation of gravity and dark energy occurs at large scales. We are where the radius is large. So the first part shows us how space-time is expanding. Okay. And I believe this, this formula solves the Hubble, the current Hubble tension. 
Was in this formula, the Hubble parameter, which is kind of called the Hubble parameter, is the actual constant. And the expansion of space is dependent on these factors, on the mass in it. Uh, which means uh, R is dependent on the mass in it. The expansion of space depends on the amount of baronic matter, matter that we know in it. And the speed, if you differentiate this equation, find the speed. We can also find the rotational speed at that radius Rn. And this is the rotational speed we find in galaxies, okay? This is the rotational speed we find in galaxies. And it is also called the baronic Talley-Fisher relationship which evolved. In my case, it's called the evolving baronic Talley-Fisher relationship because of this term. But this term has been empirically observed in galaxies. Galaxies actually do obey this law. And we will show you later that it, they also need this term. And the expansion rate, the expansion rate, by differentiating this, we can get the expansion rate of, the, of a galaxy. A galaxy also expands. And we can also have the expansion rate of the universe as well using this formula. So we can place a, a dust, a cold dust cloud, that is a, a dust with low speed. Okay. And then we can see that it will evolve in time because its locality is expanding according to this formula. And then we see a similarity with what was happening to a quantum particle when you leave it in a locality. It will also display the same features, okay? But now our time scale is in 100 million years, yet for a quantum particle is in uh, nanosecond, less than nanosecond, far much below nanosecond, okay? Now, we come to the full canonical quantization of general relativity, because we want quantum gravity is basically trying to rewrite general relativity in the language of quantum field theory, which is the wave function. So in my work, I found that the metric coefficients can be reduced to this form, to these, those block energy eigenstate functions. So this is the metric coefficient, which is, can be written in this form. If you multiply these uh, direct coefficients, it just gives you the Minkowski metric multiplied by this wave function. So the Ricci flow in these compact manifolds is in this form. Okay, we rewrite the Ricci flow in this form. Now this part here, I can reduce it to n minus one, bracket multiplied by n plus one. This part is telling me that there must be a covariant derivative acting on the metric coefficient. And in another contravariant derivative, acting on this coefficient. So I will reduce now substituting, substituting the wave functions for G. I'll get this part, the left side will look like this. And the right side, I have this covariant derivative. One is uh, contravariant, the other is covariant. And they all, these derivatives are of this form. Okay, what, what is happening here? is that we are seeing this is describing 
the time evolution of a, a comp of what I was calling dark matter or a compact Einstein manifold. Okay, it's emitting uh, here. It's emitting a low energy gravity, the ground state gravity, and here there's an absorption of that. So what is the rich flow? What's happening here in the rich flow? It's telling us that space time is coming from a high energy state to a low energy state. Okay, it's cooling down like a heat spot, a hot spot as it cools down. So how is it cooling down? It's emitting the low energy graviton, so it's cooling down. Now, the most important thing is that term now, it appears here. And these, these terms, these are entangled uh, derivative uh, operators, sorry, quantum operators. These are entangled quantum operators. And this coefficient or term is the area of speed of the action of an entangled quantum operator, which is 17 square light years per second. So what I'm saying here is that this is the speed of quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement involves quantum operators. When it operates on one particle, another particle separated by many light years feels the action, the operation of this of this operator and the speed at which this operator it acts over an area it doesn't act in a straight line it operates over an area so it has an area of speed of 17 square light years per second so this is what i wanted to explain about uh, the expansion of space so we start with the graviton with radius r1 it emits a low energy graviton then it expands to r2 it emits a low energy gravity, and then it expands to R3 and so forth. So a particle, a particle of matter, of ordinary matter inside it, will express it as it had constant rotational motion. But as the emission of this gravity happens, it traces out a path that is curved like this, and it's called the geodesic. This is the path that it, it traces out. Now, if we include the presence of baronic matter, the matter that we see, we include this term, the way n squared has this value. This is the mass maybe of the earth or the sun, okay? So what is this equation telling us? It's telling us that space-time is flowing towards matter. Matter is acting like a cold spot and space-time itself is like a hot zone. Okay, so the hot zone is flowing towards a cooler zone. Okay, so now if you put a particle of a, a chest particle of matter in this space, it will flow along with the space towards the massive object that is acting like a heat sink. So the reason why you fall is because space time is flowing down like a conveyor belt, but accelerating as it goes towards the earth. It's flowing with you towards the earth, okay? We can also try to explain the wave function collapse mechanism from this theory. So we'll, before, uh, earlier on we had said that if you leave a quantum particle, it will, it will 
delocalizing space. It was spread out in space. So when you observe a particle, observation means inputting energy. So if you observe it for a time delta T, you're putting some energy delta E into it. So it, it elevates the particle, the space-time associated with that particle into a higher quantum state. And it, sh it shrinks because via this Ricci flow equation. It compactifies, it further compactifies itself, which we call collapse. Okay. And interesting, interestingly, these low quantum states, uh, if you see my publications, they're in these ones are in a low high entropy state, and this one is in a low entropy state. So it's like you are reversing time if you if you add energy to this uh, low energy space packet. You add energy, it reverses to its high energy state. All right, now let's start testing some of the equations that we found from the Nexus paradigm, the evolving tarifficial relationship, which I had earlier alluded. So here, the, this, part, the, the, this part is called the baronic tarifficial relationship. It refers to this line. This is what astrophysicists and astronomers are using currently. They don't have this blue line that I have placed. Now, these blue lines are, are due to this term and this yellow line. So what is happening? For example, look at this galaxy here. It approximately has the same mass with this galaxy here, but its outer rotational speed for these two galaxies with the same mass, which means same physics must apply. Yet this one is rotating faster and this one is rotating slower, yet they are of the same mass, okay? Why is this so? It's because of this term. Older galaxies will rotate faster than younger galaxies. So galaxies to the left of this red line are younger and galaxies to the right of this red line are older and they rotate faster, okay? So this is the evolving baronic Talley-Fisher relationship. Now let's come to galaxy rotation curve. So I'm going to deal here with young galaxies where this term reduces to approximately one because time here, the time since the galaxy came into equilibrium is approximately zero. Okay, it's too young, it's a young galaxy. So this term becomes one, which leaves this term to control the velocity, okay? So if I can find the way stars are distribution in the galactic disk, I can calculate the speed at each level, okay? Now for this part here, I've assumed that the mass density is constant, okay? If the mass density is constant, then I get this curve and I compare it with this galaxy UGC 477. This is data from Kuzo de Narey, published in 2006 in Astrophysical Journal. I compare it with the data. You find that there's a correspondence because they, but here I'm just using the average density. Note the density that varies from uh, different parts of the disk. Also for NG7, I get the same uh, shape of this format. I'm just using this part. This is the part that is controlling this curve. And then do the same for this galaxy UGC 11820. I do the same for UGC 128, again using the data from Kuzo Array. And here I'm using that 
I'm still using that uh, assumption that the density is the uniform throughout the galactic disk. However, if I start varying the density according to brightness of stars along the disk, so there are some parts along the disk that are dense, some are light, you'll find that the curve follows the brightness of the stars and the speed is almost exactly the same. This is also known as Renzo's rule, where these peaks are correlated with the brightness of that part of the galaxy. So if we now don't make that sweeping assumption that the density is uniform, but the bodies are along the galactic uh, disk, we find that the speeds exactly match each other. All right. Now there's the ring formation of Hoax object. This is called Hoax object. And the formation of that blue ring has always been a mystery. It has puzzled the uh, mystery. And for 40 years, I think people have been battling over what is this. Now, the formation of this ring is due to the Lagrangian locus that occurs at this when this happens, when the Newtonian acceleration is equal to the acceleration due to dark energy, okay? Due to that energy associated with the low quantum state of space-time. So it, when that happens, gas, it's, it's called a, a Lagrangian point where this is a place where the gravity pulling towards there and, and gravity pulling out it away, cancel out. So this is a Lagrangian locus where gas can settle, okay? So this speed can be, the speed of the rotating ring can be found. And if we divide it by, if we square that speed and we divide it by the radius, we will find that exactly this value, this value, the value that we calculated for the acceleration due to dark energy. This is the reason why these rings form is because gas is accumulating, intergalactic gas, is accumulating at a Lagrange locus, okay? It's accumulating at a Lagrange locus. We can also, uh, we show that the, those dark matter, the compact Einstein manifolds that are in space, they can cause the bending of space-time according to this equation. You can constrain the value of the quantum number of space-time using gravitational lensing. So if I know the gravitational lensing, I can tell you what the state of space-time is, okay? And what will be the rotational speed of any object in that space-time? Now, galactic cluster, this is a, a bell cluster, where galaxies are colliding, okay? And this is showing the lensing effect, and these contours, uh, where scientists are trying to evaluate the dark mass of dark matter associated with the bending of light, okay? But now in the Nexus paradigm, these are compact Einstein manifolds that are interacting with each other, okay? So what am I saying here? This part here is hot and this part is cooler according to quantum gravity in terms of space-time, of energy of space-time. This part is more energetic and the outer parts are less energetic. But the less energetic parts, they make uh, objects move faster, okay? 
they make objects rotate faster. So you can actually use it to solve what is known in gravity as the end body problem. How? By modeling this or any uh, interacting gravitational masses in terms of heat and applying the heat equation or the Ricci flow in this case to model the flow of space around. This will tell you how objects will move around in that space time. So in order to solve the anybody problem in gravity, you have to model the whole region as a heat flow. And that will show you how object will flow in that heat. Okay. Now, I would also like to tell you that the state of space-time, when you have baronic matter, that is the mass of the Earth, the value of N decreases as you increase matter. So, which means the space-time in close proximity to a massive object is in a lower, in a lower quantum state than space-time far away from it. Okay. So let's. Look at another test of the Nexus paradigm. The Nexus paradigm of quantum gravity predicts that the event horizon telescope will observe this uh, shadow of Sagittarius star. You will have a dark spot, which is 26 micro arc seconds, and a wider uh, circle, which is four times the size of the inner circle. Okay. So the radius of this is 52 micro arc seconds, which means the diameter is 104, right? And this is a tentative picture of Sagittarius A star, which was, which was taken from the 2013 Event Horizon campaign, okay? If you look at this dark spot, it is actually 26 micro arc seconds. And the outer disk, is approximately 104 microseconds, micro arc seconds, okay? And here, this white line is a demarcation where general relativity predicted where this black spot would be, all right? So this is a tentative picture. We can't say this is the final picture, but then let's look at M87, what was observed in M87. And the picture was released in 2019, okay? So what we observed was this. If this picture does not tell you much, but it tells you that there's a black ring and a glowing circle. Now, this analysis shows what is happening in that zone. If you look carefully here, you find that there's a black spot. This side of zero is approximately 10 micro arc seconds, and this side is also approximately 10, okay? So this, if this is 10, and this is approximately 40. So the ratio of this inner circle to the outer circle is one is to four. That is predicted for this one, okay? The ratio of the inner circle to the outer circle is one is to four. So I can tell you that the Nexus paradigm is doing quite well for both Sagittarius A star and M87. Now let's turn to LIGO. Okay, LIGO is a gravitational observer, observatory. It detects the gravitational waves coming from merging, usually merging black holes. Okay, from these waveforms, they can find the speed at which uh, the black holes merge, all right? 
Now, if we turn to the Nexus paradigm, okay? The quantum states next to the black hole, the, one, the black hole, inside the black hole, the quantum state is n equal to one. That's where the negative matrix signature is. Just outside the black hole, the quantum state is two. And as you go on further, it becomes three, four, and five, and, and so forth. So just outside the black hole, before black holes merge, they are in a n equal to two quantum states. If I substitute two here, I get C squared over four, or roughly a speed of half the speed of light. But we have to accommodate that there are some time dependent perturbations that can slightly increase the speed. But so what we are saying is that when black holes are about to merge, the minimum speed is, should be half the speed of light, nothing less than that, but slightly more because of the time dependent perturbation. So now let's look at the data from LIGO, okay? These are the gravitational wave data that I've obtained where they included this frequency. The other, the other data does not have this, I, I couldn't find it, but all from all those that I found this data, I found that the merging speed, the speed at the black hole is 0.53, 0.54 of the speed of light, of course, 0.55, 0 0.52, 0 0.50. All of them are above half the speed of light, okay? So, which means this quantum theory of, uh, this theory of gravity should be on the right track. Because so far we have found things that it is capable of explaining. Right, now we come to use this quantum theory to explain warp drive, okay? Now let's try to explain what is happening when an object is moving, all right? Especially this rocket. What is happening when rocket is accelerating? According to the Nexus paradigm, acceleration arises from the flow of space-time from a high energy state to a low energy state. Now, when a rocket is accelerating, the, the ignition point there where the gases are igniting, they increase the virtual photon density, okay? They increase the virtual photon density there at the point of ignition. This increase raises, this raises the quantum state of space-time. And this one here is not raised, which means it's in a low quantum state. Now, in a low quantum state space, this is more curved than this. This is an exaggeration of the curvature. The space here above the ignition is more curved than the space within the ignition. So this space in a low quantum space state is contracted and is time dilated. But this space here is in a high quantum state. The space is dilated and the time is contracted. So this is how a rocket is accelerating. It's because of the local space-time flowing faster, not because the rocket is moving through space, but it is the space itself that is flowing faster. Causing it's a local space, it's not a global space. It's the space associated with this rocket. Okay, so it's flowing. Is it, there's a flow of space from high energy to low energy level. And it's like the Alcubierre drive, but without the flat part, okay? This part space is expanded, this part space is contracted. So it's like 
the RQPL drive, but without the this rocket inside the flat system. Right, this happens on any motion, okay? A moving car, the rubber on your tires is pressing hard on the surface. And when it does that, the compression here increases the energy density of electromagnetic forces or virtual photons in this part. So this part becomes high energy density. This space here is high energy density and the space that's in front of the point of contact is in a low quantum state, this part in, in a high quantum state. So space-time or flow or an acceleration will take place, space-time or flow from there to there in this locality, okay? Also in this local, same applies when you are moving. When you put press hard against the surface, you are creating a, a region of high vacuum energy density. In this case, using virtual photons. And the space in front of you is in a low quantum state, okay? So that's how you move. Your force arises and you are moved forward. Same when you are standing, this earth that you are, the ground that you are is, is standing on is compressed, it's in a high virtual photon state. There are electromagnetic forces here that are in a, that raise the state of the, of the ground into a higher quantum state. It seems like the ground is now accelerating you upwards because the part that, that, that is, does not have compressed uh, virtual photons is in a low quantum state. So it also happens when you are standing. So what are we saying? We are saying that the presence of extra vacuum excitations of the electromagnetic field elevates the energy state of the quantum, okay, vacuum, and the vacuum expectation value of the second quantum field. So if I want to calculate the average uh, value of the electromagnetic force in that region, I use the electromagnetic tensor, okay? So if you increase the vacuum energy density by introducing more virtual photons in the impressed, impressed zone, the quantum state of space-time is elevated by additional states, okay? Remember that N squared here, we're just writing S squared times lambda. So the quantum state of that space is elevated due to the presence of above average uh, electromagnetic field tensor, okay? So we can rewrite a Ricci soliton in this form. Okay, instead, in terms of energy density of vacuum energy density, we can write it in terms of vacuum energy density. And this part is the solid, yes, we can write the vacuum energy density in terms of the stress momentum of the electromagnetic tensor, sorry. And the inner product of the electromagnetic tensor is this. It's usually zero for real electromagnetic field. This part, D squared, minus E squared usually cancels out. Well, C, uh, E is called CB. These ones cancel out. But in the vacuum, this, because they are virtual particles, the electric and magnetic fields are out of phase, suggesting that this, the vacuum can have the following condition of the invariant term. So B squared minus E squared over C squared can be greater than zero, it can be equal to zero, and it can be less than zero. Now, this part becomes interesting. This less than zero part, okay? So we can call this condition magnetic, null, or electric. So 
Now we have another spaceship, okay? This spaceship generates a, an above average virtual photon zone around it, okay? And now we tune this zone to be electric. So which means the soliton, this zone, is this equation. Now notice that now there's a negative sign here because it's in the electric mode where we are neglecting the B contribution. So this is negative, it's negative. And it, this negative sign goes to the negative matrix, uh, to the metric coefficient. So we end up having a negative matrix. So we now have a space-like environment of negative matrix signature in which the Ricci flow is faster than the speed of light, okay? So it's like, Space time in this is flowing faster than the speed of light. But here it's because it's flowing in equal, equal in all directions. This object may remain in, in, we can say, unstable equilibrium. Okay? So because it's flowing outward faster, it's, space time here is flowing faster than the speed of light. We can use uh, this equation. Okay, we can now express this equation for the Ricci flow of that soliton in this form, okay? Now, this part of the equation is a condition for gravitational attenuation and reversal. If where this n squared is the gravitational field of the Earth, for example, if it's on Earth, okay, this n squared has to do with the gravitational field of and at a radius r. So if this part here, this negative part is larger than n squared lambda, then we have this object moving up, okay? So what is it telling us? A negative metric signature simply tells you that time is moving like in reverse here. So while you fall towards the earth, this thing falls upwards, because this time moves backwards, okay? The, the covariant uh, derivatives are of this form for this uh, space time. They, they can be placed in this, they can be described in this form. So what you are saying here is that we can control this field by changing the value of E, okay? So this will be called vector control or field orientation control. If you increase maybe the electric field this side, this object will move to, to the right. If you, if you increase it this side, this object will move to the left or any direction that you increase the, what, the, the negative uh, electric field. But this electric field is, is virtual photon. It's not the real. Photon, sorry, but it is the electric field due to virtual photons, okay? So what is happening? This object, this spaceship is being elevated to a higher energy state of space-time relative to where you are, where a stationary observer is at. So what are we saying? It's like saying, uh, I've brought the space-time that is above the, where the International Space Station is orbiting. If you bring that space-time and bring it to the Earth, that space-time has more energy than the one on the ground, okay? 
So if you throw a stone at that patch of space that are cut from, from high above the earth and brought it to earth in, in, intact, if you throw a stone at it, the stone must have enough potential energy to, to reach where that object, that space, that patch of space time came from, that height. So it will encounter what is known as the gravitational potential view. That what I'm saying is this, if you take that patch of space from high above the earth and bring it to the ground, you throw a stone at it, it the stone will bounce back, it, it will slow down, okay? It will slow down as it gets to that because it needs to acquire the same gravitational potential energy as that patch of space is coming from. Only if you fire maybe a high caliber rocket at it, that's when it will slowly penetrate into the space time because it's got the gravitational potential well. In that space time, clocks tick faster and space expands faster. Right. So from an observer, this is our spaceship and this is the observer's time and we can look at, at what is happening between the observer who's outside the spaceship and the spaceship. The, the light cone is, is reversed. The spaceship's light cone is in the observer's path, okay? What, like I said before, what it really means is that while the observer is falling to the ground, the spaceship is falling upward. So here is one experimental model of generating uh, high energy virtual photons that we are working on at Big Time Technology. So this is a technology that can elevate the quantum state of space-time. What it is missing currently is uh, some nanotechnology components to increase the energy density of virtual photons around it. Okay, so that we can start testing this, uh, this idea of working space-time or creating feasible work drives. So we need some nanotechnology components that we have already designed to elevate the space-time around this object. Now, we, for the time being, we don't need to attenuate gravity to, to zero or 100%. Even if we could attenuate gravity by 10%, it would mean a lot to the aerospace industry. That's reducing the weight of gravity by just 10%. Rockets will use less fuel. Uh, aeroplanes will use less fuel. If we could just imagine that, we could also help to save the climate, which will be expending less fuel. So all we need is to improve on this technology and attenuate, create the electric, negative electric mode, the electric mode of the vacuum, of the electromagnetic vacuum. And then we can start attenuating space-time. So now I look at uh, space science and education in Africa, okay? I'll just briefly talk about this. Africa is the fast and growing nascent space industry. Living currently 20 countries with, with space agencies. They are, the, the space agencies are involved in launching weather, communication, and remote sensing uh, satellites. These technology, these, uh, these agencies or space agencies, roughly we can say 
started in 1998 when Egypt started uh, sending satellites into space. So it's a very young space industry, but it is fast growing, okay? And the, also the growth is extending to university. We have students, these are students from University of KwaZulu-Natal who are designing rockets, okay? So their rocket has reached a maximum altitude of 18 kilometers. They, they designed it at school and they launched it into space. Currently, their record is 18 kilometers. So we have a huge talent of people who are interested in space engineering. We would also enjoy if uh, people from your region in Los Angeles, where the space industry is very mature, to come and share the ideas with our students here in Africa. Okay, we also have uh, universities that are dealing with space science, such as Stellenbosch University, University of Cape Town, KwaZulu-Natal. They are the these ones are specialized in space physics, satellite communications, and navigation and positioning. Fort here and University of Pretoria, they generally into astronomy and Earth observation. So this is briefly what I have to say on uh, space science and education. Uh, the space science industry is very young, but it is fast growing, and investors are welcome to to speed up the process. So finally, we asked the question. The question was asked by American Institute of Astro Aeronautics and Astronautics, LALV. If we don't take the challenge, who will? Right, thank you. I can, we can now have questions and answers. Yeah, great, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think we uh, we have uh, Dandy can't wait to ask questions. So we have uh, uh, Mr. Kumar uh, Santosh. Let's see, where are you? Uh, let's see, Santosh. We'll try to uh, unmute him. Okay, go ahead, Santosh. You have a question. Yes, uh, I wonder if you can go back to the slide where you showed the uh, the the waves on Earth. With, uh, with the with the uh with the with the spacecraft with uh the dilation and the compression, real quick because I have a question about that. On 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 um on feasible warp drive. Uh, yeah, it was one where you showed the rocket with the with the uh, time dilation or time compression and space dilation. All right, I, I, I get that, that, this one. Let me share my screen. So we are talking about this slide. Yes, yeah, so if we go full screen real quick. So we can, yes, uh, yeah, go full screen real quick because we, and, uh, so we can, I can take a better look at it here. If you go to the bottom right corner, there's the, the little tiny icon. The bottom, bottom uh, right there, yeah. Uh, right next to the 100%, there's a slideshow button to go full screen. Uh, to the left, left. Go to the left, left of that, left to the 100%. No, 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 no not, not that, not that. Go to the, uh, there's a button 
That's a slideshow next to that yeah. whole section. Yeah, you, I'm going to from here. Yeah, okay, that's fine. That'll work too. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, okay cool. In this slide and the next slide. So go one more as well. All right. This one and the next one. Oh, I move on to the next slide. Yeah, go good. Yeah. Okay. Is this similar to the uh, uh, compression shock waves and expansion waves and supersonic flight? Because it seems like a similar concept. You see, in physics, there are symmetries in many um, phenomena. Sometimes, if we understand like the compression wave phenomenon, we can translate it and extrapolate some similar features. But uh, I'm not very familiar with, uh, with uh, compression waves uh, physics. But I can tell you what is happening here is just this part here, the space is expanded or it's in a high energy state and the part in front of it is in a low energy state and space time, local, the local space time here flows from generating an acceleration. Are you familiar with uh, supersonic flows, you know, like Bernoulli equations? Yes, yes. supersonic flow, yes. And, and you know, once yes. you go so, uh, you start converging a flow that results in shock waves. How, uh, and, you know. Yes, uh, creating a sound sonic boom. Yeah, exactly. And then when you, but uh, conversely, uh, and of course, you know, pressure, you know, uh, all, you know, change correspondingly. And then when you, Conversely, when you expand a flow divergently, uh, it actually results in expansion waves uh, and actually accelerates the flow even more. And so what I'm wondering is, is, that's what, is that a similar idea of what's going on here uh, with the, um, I don't know what you want to call these, the gravitational waves or, or, or space-time waves, but is that well, a similar it, 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 uh, it's a flow of space time from a high energy state to a lower energy state. So, of course, you're right. It's, uh, it has to do with flow of waves as, as such. But, like I was saying, I'm not familiar with uh, compression wave dynamics. Okay. So, I cannot make a very accurate uh, description of what, what I can tell you is what is happening in terms of my physics of space time. Okay. But the point you're highlighting is what I was talking to Ken earlier about if uh, engineers come together, they start having more ideas on how to make the technology better. Sure. So if you have this, if yes, that, that, that's what we are actually looking at, how to make it even more better, okay? So this is the basic, what you are seeing here is the basics, but we could make it better because we have now understood why something moves. Sure. Okay, so we can now enhance that effect. So if you can use compression wave to enhance that effect better, it will be another way of moving faster using minimum energy. Is it kind of like a shock wave? That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 like I was telling you, what I can tell you from my perspective is that it's a flow of space-time from a high energy level to a low energy level. That's that's the spire that I, go, I can go making comparison with uh, compression waves. Uh, I'm really, like I told you before, I'm not familiar with a lot of compression wave dynamics or physics. 
But oh, if thanks. you are free to, we can even discuss it further. If you have more ideas, we will discuss it further. Well, I was trying to find an analogy here. That's something that we could understand from, uh, uh, from fluid flows. You know, if you were to use a fluid flow yes. analogy, the concept of shock yeah. waves forth, next, uh, would apply here as well because it looks somewhat similar. Yeah, actually, actually, I think you are getting, uh, you are, it's very right. Well, now I'm getting the picture. This is the reason why you see that shock wave you are talking about. It's also like, this is the reason why we have a light speed barrier, okay? We have a sound barrier, sure. and then, which means we have a light speed barrier because of this effect that is related to shockwave compression. Exactly, now I'm getting the picture. That's why objects can't travel faster than light because of that, what you're alluding to, because of the compression wave phenomenon. That's why objects can't travel faster than light. You can explain the, why the speed of light is the limit because of those compression waves you are talking about. Thanks for that. Yes, yeah, so I knew there was some sort of an analogy there because um, when we had another AIW presenter present in Long Beach, he was a uh, Long Beach, uh, uh, he was a Kelsey Long Beach professor, I think, or, or with, the, with the Oral Corporation. He actually just came up with propulsion technologies uh, in which you could actually use uh, gravitational waves to, uh, you know, for propulsion. And when you when you do the the diagrams, it looked exactly like aircraft going supersonic in terms of shock waves and expansion waves. So that's the reason why I wondered if it was the same similar concept. Okay, that's another technology that uses gravitational waves. Now this one uses uh, the actually changing the metric of space time using virtual photons. Sure. It doesn't use gravitational waves. It uses the 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 technology that I'm describing for feasible work it uses virtual photons sure. to change the metric of space-time into a negative metric. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, thanks, George. Yeah, I think basically what uh, uh, Stuart was talking about is to extract uh, uh, the uh, I said propulsion or energy from vacuum, which is different from using gravitational wave. Sure. There's a fundamental difference that he's trying to tell. Uh, then the other thing is, uh, but it, it, what you say is kind of what the what from the Einstein was trying to do is, uh, you know, gravitational force. You know, the product moving, you can say is a force, you know, like a propulsion pulled by by the uh, planetary body, but it can also view as the, as Stuart showed, you know, this uh, curvature of space-time. So that's Einstein, which is a different view Oh, he was trying to express this, this force is kind of curvature of space-time. So, so it's kind of similar, but it's not exactly the same. And what he's trying to do here is something new, is to extract things from, this is actually a hot topic. There are quite several groups that are trying to uh, explore the energy dark matter. And uh, this is actually better than the occupier drive or gravitational uh, wave because they are disadvantaged of those, as I say, you know, creating a lot of issue. We have to have something, you know, uh, behind you or something like that. Now, the presentation that you hosted at Long Beach, remember with the Aero Corporation uh, engineer? Yeah, uh, he, he actually spoke again two years ago in uh, Palos Verdes Library. Yes. Now, what was, was he using gravitational waves or was he using quantum gravity here? Uh, no, he, he was, he, he talked about possibly extracting uh, vacuum, but he didn't elaborate on that. What he was talking is called, a, you know, a little bit like a faster than light uh, technology. But he's not exactly trying to extract from the quantum vacuum. 
I think I remember now, basically what he was showing was that when he started approaching the speed of light with uh, propulsion technology, regardless of what the technology is, you will actually generate uh, waves, like gravitational waves, analogous to shock waves. Uh, you'll call relativistic waves, I think is what the term he used. So you'll start kind of, you know, as you start approaching higher speeds, uh, that's very similar to a shock wave. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, you know, the gravitation, as Stuart saying, is, is kind of a long range, where weak force. But I think he was trying to say here is at, at a quantum level, he's trying to combine the quantum, you know, field and uh, the uh, gravity. So actually, that's came to my question, because I, I read something about this uh, application of quantum gravity. They say they are most suitable, you know, for the, uh, like, the boundary of the black hole. And uh, there's a kind of layer that uh, this apply very well. Or this actually apply everywhere, you know. That that's actually my question. This apply everywhere in the universe, or is more significant, you know, a certain area. When you say the boundary, do you mean like the event horizon? Yeah, yeah. So so actually, I have this question, you know. So but from uh, the speaker's talk, it seems that this is fundamentally everywhere. Uh, so that that's actually in, in, in you know initially I have so initially let's. I have a thought when I was thinking, it's you, you approach, you know, some kind of black hole, wormhole, then utilize the quantum gravity, then you can uh, kind of uh, achieve this uh, this kind of propulsion. But if it's, uh, you talk about the rotation speed of the galaxy as evidence of this quantum gravity theory. Um, but uh, so then I, I, I'm kind of, can you do, use this as a general propulsion if we can benefit from the quantum back everywhere, or it has to be more close to kind of uh, black hole. So, so how do you think, uh, 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 Mr. Maroney? How do you think? So, can we utilize benefit everywhere in the universe for this kind of uh, quantum vacuum, or it's better to use it in a near, near uh, black hole or you know something very with huge mass? All right, all right, all right. okay. In my physics, uh, my research in, in this phenomenon of black holes, the zone near a black hole is in a low quantum state, which means uh, if you put a particle of matter in that zone, it's fuzzy, just like I showed that apple, it becomes fuzzy, it becomes delocalized. What I was trying to explain in this uh, presentation is that the best way is not to use concepts such as black holes and we can use virtual photons. We can use virtual photons from, we just need to generate virtual photons, not black holes, like for, for wormholes. All we need are virtual photons, an elevated state of I see, I virtual see. photons. Yeah. I see. Yeah, so there's the, somehow the spacecraft well, generates. That's why it makes it feasible. That's why it makes it feasible. Because we are not using uh, long-term concepts such as black holes. We are using something that if we can improve on generation of virtual photons, just around a spaceship with a zone of high level virtual photons in the electric mode, they will switch the space-time metric and generate attenuate gravity, like I showed in that equation for attenuating gravity. Yeah, so it can can be applied so we everywhere. That, yeah. As long as yeah, you can so generate the virtual photon density do, gradient. Yes. So we are saying this equation here, yeah, this part of this equation, this refers to the contribution of the Earth's gravitational field. 
if you make this part negative, more negative than this part, then this object will fall upwards. Okay, but we don't necessarily have to make it more negative than this side. If we could just reduce it by even 10%, we could make huge savings on fuel, on launch, launch facilities. So all we need is to start incremental steps by attenuating the field using this equation. What we need are virtual photon states, high energy photons to attenuate the local gravitational field. Very good. Uh, I think Mark asked a question. Can you see the Q&A box? Yes, yes. Yeah, Mark, uh, Mark Scheider, uh, Mr. Scheider asked a question about Einstein barrier. All right. Did you see it? Yes, I, I understand. Like we are saying, this is nothing to do. You see, Einstein barrier is, is conceived when an object is moving in space. Now here, it is the space-time metric that is moving. Okay, is this local space, you see this sphere, it is the local space metric, the local space that is moving, not the spaceship. So space can move faster. But now this one is in, in a negative metric state. Basically what it's telling you is that it falls opposite to normal matter. Well, normal matter falls, uh, matter outside the metric, that is matter outside the metric, will fall down to the earth. This one will be repelled by the earth. But you can increase the repulsion effect or the, or, or the flow, the rich flow inside, the negative rich flow by This is not for real photons, it's for virtual photons. Photons that emanate inside the quantum vacuum. Remember, space-time is related, not, it is related more to the virtual photons that are creating it. So this part, if you could elevate this part, you don't even have to have a, you see, okay, let me even make it much more clearer. What uh, Schneider is talking about, if you are accelerating an object from below the speed of light, okay? But this one is like you, it's like it's in a reference frame, that is in where, where, where it is slower than the person outside you, okay? What am I saying? It's like things around it are moving faster than it itself is in a, it's not moving inside itself, it's not moving. It, it, when an object is not moving, it has a maximum speed of, the speed of light, okay? When an object is stationary in space, it has a speed in time equal to the speed of light. So this object is not starting from below speed. It's starting from the speed of light in time, if I have to put it that way. Yeah, I think, I think maybe, maybe we can correct me. I think, Mark, I think uh, this is kind of different kind of way of thinking. For example, some people can draw the two points at the end of uh, both end of the paper, if you want to draw a line in travel, then you are kind of you have kind of the regular propulsion thing. But if you fold the paper, you know, to put these two points together, that's folding the, you know, the space time. So in a sense, I think it's uh, changing the 
you know, the space time around the spacecraft, but it's not the actually try to propel propulsion for the spacecraft. You see, before the paper from both ends, and you can touch the, the two points together without moving the dot, right? I think that's kind of things like that, something like yes. that. Yes, what you are, exactly, what you are doing is this, in my construction, you are actually elevating the state of that space way above, the energy state of that is way above where that observer outside the, outside the spaceship is. The space time is in a higher energy state, okay? It's in a higher energy state there than for the person who's on the ground. So here we are talking in quantum gravity, it's better to talk in terms of quantum state space time, not in terms of curvature. So I see. This space, yes. So we need to shift, that's why it's the nexus paradigm. We need to shift our view of gravity from the geometric view of Einstein. Yes, it works well, but I believe from what I've shown you the evidence for the nexus paradigm, it's, it's, it's better off to go into the quantum uh, gravity zone. In this level, we discuss, it's better to discuss space-time in terms of energy state. So that, that spaceship is in a higher energy state. It's like a bubble of high energy, okay? Which once, let's suppose I create the space-time around the spaceship to the same energy density as the space-time around the uh, International Space Station. This object will float up to that level, okay? It will be repelled up to the height of the space station without expelling because this space-time wants to be in a state where it's equal to where the way it it's in the same state with the others. Are we together? It's being elevated upwards. Space is, uh, the, the quantum state of the space around the spaceship is the same as the quantum state of, uh, of an object far away from the gravitational field. Yeah, I, I see what you so you change by changing the uh, yeah. the level so of the, the quantum gravity state. It happened that uh, the spacecraft can be in in a uh, uh, different uh, space time uh, by changing the state. Yes. Yeah, okay. okay. So it's like reversing the flow of water, okay? It's flowing, the, for an object falling to the earth, the flow is going from, from uh, above the earth to the earth. But in this case now, the flow is going from the earth to uh, away from the earth, the flow, the, the rich flow. Okay, it's like you have created a, if this curved zone might represent a cold spot, but now you have created a, a hot spot uh, in the middle of cold spot. Okay, so this is what is happening. The space time around the spaceship is in a higher energy state. Okay, very good. I think there's another question from, from Mark. Did you see that? About the war bubble. Yes, in a way we can call it a war bubble. Uh, we can call it a war bubble, but like I was saying, quantum, it's a bubble of more.
Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes, we had lost our uh, internet connection. Okay. Is it okay now? Yes, it's okay now. Now go ahead. So, yes, what I'm saying is that these are, these are different concepts from the geometric uh, concept in general relativity. We are better off talking in terms of energy state of space-time. That is what energy state of space-time is the spaceship in. But this spaceship generates a negative metric signature. That's the most important thing because it makes it fall upward that basically. Hello? Hmm. The ground itself, it falls away from the ground because of the negative metric. Okay. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, okay. So maybe uh, Stuart internet over there is kind of unstable. Yes, let me switch on to another network. This one is kind of unstable. Yeah, try not to show the slide because you already show it and that might affect your speed over there. Is okay? Uh, Mr. Maronwe, is okay now? All right, looks like uh, we, we might have, yeah, he says he's trying to switch to uh, a different um, network. So, uh, during this time, I, I think I would just uh, try to start the second one. And then when he rejoined, he's welcome to speak anything. Okay, so let me do this. So uh, I'm going to tell uh, say a little bit about the quantum computer, quantum supremacy. Uh, we have been trying to kind of set up the event and uh, in the past four, three, four years, so I gather some kind of information. Uh, they have a background in, um, you know, uh, in, in the related field. Uh, although I was not doing computing, but because I was uh, and I have uh, uh, actually studied, you know, quantum mechanics and uh, quantum field a little bit, and I've been kind of ex extensively exposed in computers. So I'm trying to uh, provide you some basic information. Be, we, are have, we are going to have more events with uh, quantum computers, and uh, I've obtained my PhD from Carnegie Mellon University in around, uh, around 2001, uh, study after September 11th. 
Okay, so I'm just self-introduced myself. So I think the speaker is back. So let me uh, switch back to him. Uh, so Mr. Marui, can yes, you hear me? Hello. Yeah, yeah, yes, please. Good, right. so yeah, you continue your explanation. All right, sure. All right, what I was saying is that if this reason why I'm saying it's a feasible warp drive is that all we just need to do is generate a virtual photon states around a spaceship. Okay, if you generate this virtual photon state in the electric mode, they will generate a negative metric signal. So this is not uh, far out like trying to create a black hole. Right. So the virtual photons in the negative, uh, in, in the electric mode, they act actually like the negative energy that our Cuvier is looking for. Maybe that makes it clear. The electric mode of the virtual photons act like our Cuvier's negative or energy. Okay. I don't know if there's any other question. Uh, so Mark, uh, Mr. Schneider, is this okay? If you if you have further questions, you're welcome to speak out. Okay, so if Mark has... Yeah, I'm okay. here, yeah. Yeah, is, is this a, is a, a speaker's explanation okay for you or you have further questions? Um, well, it's, you know, to, to uh, develop a warp bubble around the ship, um, wouldn't you have to have some kind of a technology to create the bubble, you know, like an electromagnetic field or, put a, or something like that? How would you create this warp bubble? All right. Um, what I was... Um this is the technology that I'm working on, but I will not describe the details of the technology because of patenting process, okay? What I'm saying, you can actually generate a virtual photon field around this operator of negative electric mode. And what we would want to measure is an attenuation of the gravitational field, not necessarily 100% cancellation, but an attenuation using some nanotechnology components that we can add onto this device so that we attenuate the field. So you don't need exotic technology. The nanotechnology components can be manufactured, it's just that they are very expensive. They can be manufactured and we can test uh, the, because it stems from the theory that we've tested at, at galactic using astrophysical observation. And we find that it's working well. So we can also test this theory using this uh, equipment to see if can we make a cancellation of gravity or even attenuate it to some by some percentage. Even if we were able to attenuate it by 10%, that would be fantastic for technology.
Okay, good. Well, it, I'm glad to see, Stuart, I'm glad to see you, you're working on a technology to create the bubble. So that's yeah. what I was, yeah, thank you very much for, for pointing this out. Thank you. Sure, sure. By the way, it's called stimulated quantum vacuum activity. Yeah, squava. Yes. Yeah, very good. It elevates the average value of the electromagnetic tensor for the vacuum for the vacuum electromagnetic field. Yeah, so keep us updated. So when you have some progress, come back, you know, uh, or any time. It doesn't have to have sure, any sure. progress. You know, next time when you have something, you come back and right. uh, tell us, you know, what you new design or what you plan to do, or you have you've got the nanoparticle, tell us the great news, you know. Uh, have right. some, yeah, and great to see okay. your great progress and all the uh, uh, wonderful development in Africa. It's wonderful. Okay. So we'll stay attention. As I said, we'll have an article this month or next month, uh, you know, about the development over there. All right. Uh, so great. yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So thank you so much again, Mr. Moroni. This is fantastic, wonderful, very exciting. The people are paying a lot of attention now. Yeah. Very good, very good. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so as I said previously, you know, uh, next kind of talk is kind of discussion because uh, we have been trying to find speakers for the quantum computation, comp computer, but it's kind of keep always delay, delay. So, but uh, it's been three or four years. So I feel there's a good time because Stuart is talking about this uh, quantum uh, and this quantum thing has getting into aerospace. And uh, I'm just trying to tell you what I, I saw her and uh, uh, from the uh, around the people and uh, uh, the news and uh, how this quantum going to affect aerospace and uh, how it's going to how 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 we should be informed. So I think it's a great opportunity. And uh, if anything, you know, uh, please correct me. But this um, this it means to for a discussion. Um, it's, it's not really you know mean for a kind of authoritarian you know for authority this uh, talk, but it just give you the information I gather. And the passage in the process trying to set up the uh, good program for AIW Los Angeles Las Vegas section. Uh, and you see, a lot, I heard a lot of news, you know, uh, China trying to do something, you know, those kinds of things. So I try to kind of also try to clarify those myths and uh, uh, those kinds of things. And this is highly related to uh, Mr. Uh, Maroni was talking about. He was he already talked about the quantum entanglement. And uh, he also talked about Schrodinger equations, those things. Uh, uh, in, in this discussion, it's not going to have a lot of equations, but it's going to show you some of the state. The intention is to kick up, kick off the uh, program for AIW Los Angeles as big a section, as we might have the speaker very soon, you know, on this topic, or uh, depending on the, the process. So basically, you know, there's a lot of topic here, but, you know, just to show you, it is an exciting topic, and many companies like IBM, Google, Microsoft, Lockheed Martin, they are putting a lot of money and effort into this. So we want to see what's going on. So in this page, you see IBM Q is, is uh, uh, you know, that's a, they are doing the superconductor, uh, you know, quantum computer, and there's a D wave. Uh, they're uh, also doing, you know, superconducting, you know, uh, things. Now for IBM, they're doing the Josephson junction, uh, those kind of stuff. Um, so just try to kind of mention, you know, for this talk, uh, this discussion, it is not intended to sell any company product 
And it's just intended to let people know this is something emerging as important for aerospace. And uh, it's also have fun and also to, you know, people got interest and uh, we have had more, uh, you know, discussion on this and events coming up. I just say, feel that we cannot wait. You know, this is very important. Okay, so this is something coming up from the news. Uh, there's a company called the D-Wave system and they have been working on uh, the quantum computers and working with Lockheed Martin. Oh, Santosh. Yeah, when you're not, um, yeah. or not pointing at the, you can move the mouse cursor off the screen. So oh, okay. It's well, uh, Okay. Yeah, so you can see that uh, they are working with the major uh, players. Uh, Lockheed Martin is a very important player in this, and they all work with USC. That's another very big uh, aerospace research center and uh, uh, Los, Los Alamos National Laboratory. Uh, they work on various things from nuclear engine for, uh, from defense aerospace. So just to show you, of course, there are other companies, you know, regular, comp uh, regular computer company and uh, internet company or financial companies. Okay, so I, I think Stuart mentioned is a uh, uh, gentleman is Richard Feynman and uh, he's actually quite important in this regard. And uh, he is actually connected with aerospace very well. And uh, he won the Nobel Prize 1965, quantum field theory, quantum electrodynamics. And uh, uh, he actually, in 1959, he already said something, you know, because there's such a smaller scale, uh, it suggests might be exported uh, in the design, more comp powerful computers. And what mostly people are talking about is 1982, and that he proposed that because the nature is actually uh, composed of things better explained by quantum mechanics, not by classical physical mechanics. So he, in, in this occasion related to IBM, then he feels that uh, there's a great possibility you can build a computer using quantum mechanics and uh, to simulate nature. This is in 1982, that's very well regarded. And I want to play a short uh, theory is by Bill Gates, a kind of review uh, about, you know, Richard Feynman. So let's just um, see if it played well. I will share. Uh, hit the full screen button when you can. Okay, yeah, it's, it's loading, so I'm, I'm waiting for it's loading. Well, Richard Feynman was an incredible scientist, but perhaps even more importantly, he was an amazing teacher. I'd read the Feynman lectures on physics. I learned a lot of the physics I know from that book. He could explain things in a fun and interesting way to anyone. Things happen that don't happen the other way. You drop a cup and it breaks. You can sit there a long time waiting for the pieces to come together, come back into your hand. Cornell invites him to give this series of lectures. And it's Feynman explaining physics to non-physics majors. It's so good. And for me, those are the best sort of general audience thing that Feynman ever did. So I've always recommended those lectures. I helped get them up on the internet. And because he had pushed himself to have such a deep understanding, his ability to take you through complicated things was incredible. And he's the only one who's really succeeded in explaining quantum physics in a clear way. Taking something 
that is a little mysterious to most people and using very simple concepts to explain how it works. Well, that's classic Feynman. He made science so fascinating. He reminded us how much fun it is and how there really are answers. He's such a joyful example of you know, how we'd all like to learn and think about things. It's a very interesting thing, this tremendous world of interconnecting hierarchies. We are gradually understanding this connection, proving all the time our understanding of the world. Okay, so um, basically this is Hardy's and his uh, major contribution is in the uh, uh, quantum electrodynamics, but he is a figure, he played drums, he was uh, uh, talking about computers, you know, a different kind of thing, very, very, uh, people really like him. Uh, we'll talk about his connection with aerospace shortly, but you know, in the real world, what he was trying to say, like uh, proteins or Molecule. This is a fertilizer that uh, IBM trying to use their best uh, supercomputer summit to resolve, but it reached a bottleneck because you know in, in order to actually simulate nature, you need to kind of represent each of the electrons and the each molecule and the, the the simulate the distance, you know the the forces, etc. That's just very tremendous, huge uh, work for the even the fastest super com uh, supercomputer we have. Uh, these days, it's very difficult. We can do a very small molecule, uh, so this is one of the bottleneck we are facing right now. Um, oh, sorry. And uh, so this is picture. I mean, try to connect with what uh, uh, Stuart was talking about. Uh, so there's you know quantum mechanics and the general relativity. You can see people are trying to build spacecraft to study the uh, gravity, and the, you can see the chart here. The relationship between Newton uh, Newtonian gravity. Uh, classical mechanics and uh, you know quantum field theory, general relativity, and the quantum gravity. That's position where you know uh, Stuart was talking about. Uh, try to bring this. So you basically have quantum short dynamics, part of quantum field theory. The reason why I mentioned is just try to link you know from the previous talk to to this one. Uh, so now I'm going to talk about Richard Feynman is actually very <laughs> important in the aerospace because the challenger, he was very well known for the challengers. Uh, he was in the Rogers committee uh, to do it. And the committee, the vice chairman was actually uh, um, our well-known Neil, Neil Armstrong. Uh, so let me, I've played a short clip, you know, to, uh, to, to let you see what it is. I won't play the whole video just to show you what, what was the committee was all about. And our criteria, since all of the rain protection modifications were not in place, that after each rain, we would go out and reinspect the water protection system, which is sprayed on the top. Yeah, this is Sally Wright, the first American woman in space. And I'll, I'll roll back. Maximum expected flight pressure. And what that amounts to is that's, uh, that's 8% of the 1.4 safety factor, and that's the convention in solid rocket motor uh, technology. Excuse me. On uh, on what do you apply this? This is Neil uh, Armstrong. 112% proof test. Uh, segments. You can see each, Richard Feynman was sitting on the back side. Segment. Each segment. Thank you. Does the uh, term limit load apply to the uh, uh, 
ultimate strength of the material or the yield point or what? Uh, that's In ultimate. Words, there, that would be uh, that would be ultimate, and uh, uh, that would be you know breaking up. It, it, you would you, the requirement is that you don't break up at less than 1.4 times the maximum expected low. You don't have an ultimate break failure. Up. Right. Thank you. Uh, then we have done uh, X-ray, and we did 100% X-ray of the of the propellant in the first 68 excuse me 68 segments that were manufactured. So I'm going to play another one. This is uh, uh, more directly on Richard Feynman. It's a very important role in the. Good evening. Here's what's happening. The report on the space shuttle disaster is now in President Reagan's hands, and the public will get a look at it on Monday. Tonight, CNN's John Holloman reports some hard-fought battles among members of the investigative commission that wrote the report. One member was harshly critical of NASA, and therein lies the tale that John Holloman unfolds now from Washington. Commission member Richard Feynman charged that NASA had virtually ignored the principles of physics and good scientific practice in designing, testing, and building the space shuttle. The Nobel Prize-winning physicist wrote a section of the final report known as Chapter F. Commission sources say Chairman William Rogers read the chapter and was furious. He called Feynman to Washington Wednesday and urged him to tone down his criticism of NASA because Chapter F threatened to destroy public confidence in the space agency. Feynman returned to his home in California and began his rewrite, but then changed his mind. Sources close to the scientists say he felt his ethics were being compromised. He sent a message to Rogers threatening to resign from the commission and demanding his name be taken off the final report if his chapter was not included in its entirety. After a day of tense negotiation, Feynman agreed to stay on the commission and sign the final document. But the result of all this is that President Reagan will not read Dr. Feynman's criticism this weekend at Camp David. His chapter will be printed and released as part of the lengthy appendix to the report. At the White House, a senior administration official says there's still no consensus on a fourth shuttle orbiter, but CNN has learned the president does support the plan to replace Challenger. The senior official says if the fourth orbiter is approved, the president will ask Congress to appropriate money to build it, rather than take money from current NASA programs. John Holloman, CNN, Washington. The Membersman promises to be somewhat more harsh in its evaluation of the space agency than the General Commission report being made public today. Sources close to the panel say the Nobel physicist Richard Feynman had concluded that the chances of a catastrophic shuttle accident were far greater than NASA had predicted before the Challenger disaster did happen. Dr. Feynman, you may remember, was one of the more skeptical members of the Rogers Commission. He had asked some of the tougher questions of the NASA witnesses. In fact, he had threatened not to sign the final report out today because it was, he thought, not tough enough. And the Nobel Prize winning physicist from the California Institute of Technology. Welcome, sir. Was this an accident that did not have to happen? Yes, it, yes, it was. It was uh, an accident that had many, many warnings that there was something wrong and that it might sooner or later go off. And uh, the warnings were disregarded. Disregarded out of incompetence, out of a faulty system, out of bad judgment, out of, for what reason? I had some difficulty with that. I kind of imagined that something like a child that runs in the, in the road and the parent is very upset and says it's very dangerous. And the child comes back and says, but nothing happened. And he runs out in the road again. 
several times and the parent keeps saying it's dangerous and nothing happens. If the child's view that nothing happened is a cl clue that there was nothing going to happen, then that's going to be an accident. You could hear. Okay, so uh, I guess this, uh, let's see. Break squealing. Uh, this is another one. I would just try to build a link between him and the aerospace and the quantum computer in aerospace. Before the event, from information that was available and understanding that was available, was it fully appreciated everywhere that this seal would become unsatisfactory at some temperature and was there some sort of a suggestion of a temperature at which the SRB, I guess you call it, yes, shouldn't be run? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, there was a, a suggestion of that. To answer the first question, uh, given the configuration that we ran, that the, that the seal would function at that temperature. That was the final judgment. But Commission Member Richard Feynman, after examining the O-ring, had a surprise. Oh, I took the stuff that I got out of your seal and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem. Okay, so I'm coming back uh, to, so just try to connect this and uh, it's a very uh, important time and the uh, tragedy at that point. Okay, so this is, if you look at around the aerospace companies, uh, this is one from Aerospace Corporation. It's very interesting. They were actually sadly moving into, you know, doing quantum communication uh, for space. You know, they do a lot of satellites. So there's a lot of effort in this. And another one, they are doing the unlocking quantum key distribution, uh, you know, for space as a cybersecurity. It's very important, you know, for space communication and also the local, for space cybersecurity. And uh, you can see in the news media, you know, this is very recent one, just February, it's a China launched a cloud-based quantum computing operating system software to challenge US in technology. You know, it's kind of scary, you know, this, uh, what's going on, you know. Uh, then you see this, you know, uh, back in 2015, when China sent the uh, laser beam you know, to space, they created the entangled uh, state and uh, kind of prove the teleportation can be said this, oh, people say, okay, now China can do Star Trek, you know, those kinds of things, and that you can do quantum internet. Some people got scared, but exactly, it's really like that, they can beam people into space. Uh, it's not exactly that, that, but you will see later on. Then you can see a uh, Chinese scientist set a record for the farthest quantum teleportation, uh, I believe 870 miles. Uh, this is, uh, things like this keep going, and people say, oh, even space.com scientists, oh, you can do, uh, beam people up, you know. Um, so some members uh, attendee came to me and they say, oh, what's going on? And we're trying to find speaker to explain all this. And uh, again, you can see this uh, quantum computation, teleportation, you know, 300 miles, those things. And North of Grumman, this is North of Grumman website. They are citing this uh, quantum entanglement and teleportation, the cyber technology in real life. They're actually citing the Chinese, uh, you know, scientists uh, experiment. Uh, on this. 
so there are a lot of hypes, you know, or things there. And there's any fact or any exaggeration there. Um, now people saying, you know, those entanglement interpretation may be violated the principle, you know, uh, you know, the maximum uh, speed of uh, light, but actually it doesn't, you know, you as we'll see uh, later on. And also Stewart also explained a little bit, uh, but it's not like that. It's, it's just transporting the information, uh, the state of the photon, uh, state of the photon, you know, so it's, it's uh, not actually exactly the mass you know, that, or energy that being transferred. And uh, another thing is, uh, you will see later on, quantum computer is not going to replace the classical computer, it's going to be work, working together. And uh, it's not immediately kind of, it's available, but it's not immediately uh, kind of everybody need to use it. Uh, in the next 10 or 20 years, you will see this kind of uh, very critical stage, stage for quantum computer. If it works out well, yes, maybe in the, you know, uh, uh, 20, 30 years, 50 years now, it's kind of very popular. Uh, but keep in mind a lot of over uh, exaggeration. For example, actually Feynman was talking about the space shuttle. He built the problem was that it promised too much. You know, you have you can run for 60 missions, you know, reusable. If you promise too much, even though the, the best technology or great idea, sometimes, you know, you got some kind of setback. So we also have to be careful about this. And the cold fusion case that we heard, you know, the claim, claim too much, and it's also come to uh, hurt uh, the, the technology itself. Okay, so there's the issue of quantum supremacy. That's basically uh, excited news. Uh, Google Sycamore processor, quantum processor a few years ago in 2017 first and the 2019, uh, they achieved a test of 2000, uh, 200 seconds. Uh, and uh, then they published the result in Nature, which is a very prestigious uh, scientific publication. They claim that they achieve the computation speed uh, much faster. That will take 10,000 years for the state-of-the-art supercomputer. Then, of course, it... oh, uh, Santos, you have any question? Well, anyway, uh, if any questions, just uh, let me know. Okay, so, so what happened is, <clears throat> but it's uh, there's a lot of myths over there. Uh, so, for example, IBM came back to claim that it's, it's actually not true because uh, you pick the right algorithm, you know, they can actually do using the summit, the fastest supercomputer, and solve the problem 2.5 days. So, when you ask around, you know, the field for expert doing, they are very careful about saying quantum supremacy. Uh, and the quantum su supremacy is actually not saying China is dominating the world. It was just talking about versus the classical computer, when does quantum computer will reach the supremacy over the classical computers. But you have to be very careful because it heavily depends on the algorithm you use. You know? So if you change algorithm, change the problem, it might not show the significant result. Uh, then in 2020, the Chinese uh, Science Technology uh, Institute achieved another one, 76 qubits. Um, okay, Santos trying to say something. I think you can amuse yourself if you want. Yes, I did. Uh, before we go into any more detail of this stuff, uh, you may want to des describe what a quantum computer is. For example, some of the things that I have heard is that the reason it's called a quantum computer is that, uh, maybe you can say if this is true or not, is that instead of uh, using uh, voltages for ones and zeros for high voltage, high voltage, low, that they're using the quantum number electron spin plus a half and minus a half as a logical one and zero 
and, and the other thing is that the superposition principle, the main advantage being that uh, you can allow for multiple computations to all occur in parallel as opposed to doing it sequentially. Those are two things that I've heard about quantum computing. So you yeah. don't want to describe what a quantum computer actually is before we go into it so that people understand what that what this actually means. Yeah, actually, what you're talking about, actually, I'm trying to put it a little bit later. Um, but since you mentioned, I just pointed out, um, because the, the, to go to this stage, there are a lot of things you need, not a lot, there's several things you need to go through before you reach this. But Prostenio said it was true. Classically, uh, in computer, you have the classical bit, zero or one. So each time uh, is either one or zero. But for quantum computer, as Santos said, is represented by a sphere and because the quantum natural quantum mechanics, you can be a superposition of zero and one. Uh, so, uh, so it's in this picture, I think that's probably what Santos was talking about. So the advantage of um, quantum computer is it can, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be just one or zero. Uh, it can be a combination or say superposition of zero and one. So in this case, zero, represented by up uh, and uh, spin up and uh, one state means spin down. I will explain it later. Uh, so if you have three qubits, then you can see you have eight states simultaneously. So this is like a parallel computer. Uh, so if you can achieve, the superposition is a very important feature because of this, you know, versus the classical computer, you can only have one or zero at one time. And this you can, have, you know, multi-dex three qubit have three, eight already, and you can achieve superposition and entanglement. And this is exponential. So they always like to use a story of the chess player as the king, you know, for 64 you know, a square on the chess board. And the first day is one grain uh, of rice. And then, you know, gradually it was just too many, uh, like a Himalaya mountain. So uh, the quantum supremacy will be achieved mostly for the end you have a qubit number of qubit over 50, uh, mostly like 64 or something, you start to see the effect. Uh, so this is what is this all about. So let's see. But to understand this, oh, sorry, I moved the cursor away. So to explain, in order to understand this, you have to go through a little bit uh, background, but uh, since you mentioned it, it's a good idea to mention this, the importance of this qubit, superposition and another two important concept is entanglement and interference, which means measurement or noise. Uh, these are the key differences, but this is a very big difference uh, between quantum computer and the classical computer because uh, it's like a parallelism that you can do have the state simultaneously uh, processing it and uh, versus the you know classical computer when you double the number from 32 bits, you know, 8 bits, 16, 32, 64, 124, 256, and you see the is double, triple, but you don't see the expense exponential uh, capability. But there's a come with some kind of price and uh, uh, limitation, uh, which we'll talk about later. So, so I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, so there, there are many slides, but I'm I just some of them just try to go through very quickly. Uh, so uh, where are we? Okay. Um, okay, I just try to tell you what's going on around the industry in aerospace. Uh, so this is the very important one. Google tried to claim the supremacy, but other companies say, no, 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 it's too fast. 
So it's a very interesting uh, story, like, you know, uh, Super Bowl, something like that. So some people speak some German company, you know, scientists or, you know, Asian company, they were talking about this a quantum revolution. You know, in the 1927, in the Sobe conference, a, lot, a bunch of Nobel Prize, future Nobel Prize winner, they are in this meeting, there's a define the quantum physics, quantum mechanics future. Uh, this is a term from Newtonian mechanics to quantum mechanics. And they were terming the first quantum uh, revolution is the atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project. Nuclear physics, you know, benefit a lot from quantum mechanics. Richard Feynman is himself worked on the Manhattan Project. And the second quantum revolution is um, the Bardeen, Shockley, and the Breton for the, uh, by, uh, the PN junction, bipolar uh, junction transistor, 1948. Uh, they also got Nobel Prize. So I can tell each of this step, a lot of people get Nobel Prize because of this and in the Bell Lab. Uh, then people are talking about, you know, there's a kind of false uh, ambiguous line with the second or third, but some people think we should call this third revolution for 1998. Uh, then Michael Mosca and uh, Jonathan Jones in, uh, and also later I think it's uh, Dr. Chong in uh, UC Berkeley, IBM, Armadan. Uh, they, they were uh, set the first you know computer with two qubits. Uh, that's actually the breaking. Step. Of course, later on you can see Shanadao using the photonic quantum computer, and you can use D-wave using annealing. Uh, you can see this kind of revolution revolutionized. You know, not only uh, computing or uh, there's also many industry, including aerospace, you know, then in, um, so I think in, in 2000 something, IBM claimed the first universal quantum computers for business and science. It, it, it pay attention to the words uh, universal because some of the comp quantum computers has limitation. You can only use in certain cases, you can show the advantage of quantum computers. And uh, IBM claimed this is the first universal can be used for any, any, any problems. Uh, so this is a, a breakthrough and the people are making games you know, uh, using this. So a lot of uh, things going on. And uh, this is Microsoft, which is also important player, but I think they're mostly working on the cloud and uh, algorithm, you know, is they are not probably not working too much on the hardware. So just to show you what's going on and then explain what is quantum, I'll, I'll talk about it, why the, what is quanta and what is quantum, what's important. And uh, you already saw a little bit what is qubit. Qubit is uh, using quantum mechanics equivalent to the classical bit zero one but because superposition, you can carry multiple state at the same time. And what is quantum computing is, is to harness the uh, quantum physics, uh, superposition, entanglement, interference. Uh, there's a, uh, there are a couple of key persons in the series, uh, I mean, not theory and the proposal, you will see later on. Uh, so this is another important aerospace company. How, you will be very surprised how, how, much, how many aerospace are actually moving forward. Honeywell and uh, their specific division and they feel this great potential quantum computer on aerospace and defense, telecommunication, manufacturing data, source, big data, oil and gas, pharmaceutical, chemical, and the financial institute. Uh, the Microsoft, of course, you know, they, they kind of define what they were trying to do. One important thing is uh, cryptography, cryptography and uh, simulation, simulation of nature using quantum mechanics. Another very important thing that you can do is optimization. You know, companies, uh, they are doing like airline scheduling, uh, things involving optimization. Quantum computer will do a very good job. Another thing is the, the buzzword, machine learning, which we can talk about it uh, in the future. Uh, we are trying to develop the program as well. Uh, quantum machine learning, deep learning, and also like Google search. 
these kind of things that you benefit a lot from from uh, quantum computers. But you, you cannot find you cannot do everything. You know, uh, using supercomputer, there's some kind of limitation. Sometimes it just doesn't show the supremacy. It doesn't help uh, using quantum computers. Oh yeah, um, okay. So this is a company which is very important because they claim the first uh, commercial super, uh, quantum computer is D-Wave. Uh, they have been doing, you know, 250, uh, you know, application from uh, chemistry simulation, healthcare, logistic, automotive design, airline scheduling, material science, machine learning. Uh, you already see, you know, it is a very important player. So I can see this, uh, uh, this is important vendors these days. They are selling quantum computers, the D-Waves, uh, but it's a different scheme and it's very expensive. So that's why I'm saying the next 10 or 20 years generally considered a very important step for quantum computers. You know, the company who actually build this quantum computer that micro, uh, who use, uh, no, use quantum computing are Microsoft, IBM, Google, Honeywell. There are actually a couple more you will see. Uh, they're developing quantum, that means they don't, for example, Lockheed Martin, they bought the quantum computer from T-Wave, uh, but they don't build the quantum themselves, but they use it uh, a lot. Uh, you can see the Intel, you know, so uh, Lockheed certainly has something in their mind. Uh, so the couple, the next few slides, you just show you a uh, list of companies you'll see that a lot, you know, they are involving in quantum computers or using for quantum communication. Airbus, the highlight, aerospace company. Uh, the next one, Booth Allen Hamilton, uh, sorry, kind of shifted a little bit. It's another important player in defense uh, industry. Then uh, the next of it, you can see D-Wave, uh, which is very important. And you can see Honeywell. I just, uh, there are a lot of other companies like Fujitsu. They're very big uh, in, in quantum computers. Uh, but, but you know, I'm just trying to highlight why, uh, you know, aerospace uh, need to pay attention to this and uh, why, what the aerospace company has been doing these days. HRL lab laboratories, which is not multiple, is very important, you know, as well. And you can see Lockheed Martin is a very big player. Uh, maybe there's some, maybe I ignored it. And also Grumman, I forgot to highlight. North of Grumman, also move on to it. And uh, uh, wow, so a little bit. But in racing, we can most, I'm going also something, but it's probably people don't know what they are. Uh, what's the status right now? Uh, okay, so um, this is just a list, you know, try to uh, show you that uh, uh, there's a couple of things that establish the basis of quantum mechanics. For example, the double slit, slit, uh, double slit experiment, this will help you to understand why we need to work on it and uh, why uh, quantum computer is important and why this uh, solve the limitation of current uh, is uh, microelectronics. There's a link to Richard Feynman's uh, explanation on this, but I think we'll, we have a, a couple of slides on this, so we're not playing it. And uh, tunneling is another important feature that has been, you know, everywhere, like scanning tunneling microscope. This, these are, can only be, you know, explained by quantum mechanics. It will play a very important role uh, in quantum computers. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the quanta, the words come actually from Einstein. And actually, contrary to what people are thinking, you know, he's great, well-known for general relativity, special relativity, but he didn't get Nobel Prize from theory of relativity. He just got Nobel Prize from the photoelectric effect in 1905. Then he, he turned, uh, he felt that uh, the, those uh, photoelectric effect can best explain if the photon is, uh, is actually a particle. 
Actually, oh, Santosh. Oh, the, the, the... Oh, go ahead, Finch. I was going to mention something once you're done with it. Oh, you want to say something? Not yet. I just raised my hand, but just go ahead and finish. I'll mention something after you're okay. done with it. Let me know. I'll, I'll keep in mind to move the mouse away. So at this point, it's very important because in the old time, it's either Newtonian mechanics, things move like a particle, or like a, a Maxwell, Faraday, those uh, things are electromagnetic waves. But at the turn of this uh, 20th century or the end of 19th, people started to feel something wrong. A lot of things cannot be explained by either one. So this is one classical example. If you shine light, you know, on uh, like a zinc plate, and you apply the voltage electro, and uh, then you change the frequency of the light, and then you realize there's a cut off, you know, frequency, and the people could not explain. And the uh, theorists try to come up with very amazing theory. You just cannot. Then Einstein finally said there is a uh, there is a barrier you need to overcome. You know, you have to pump up uh, uh, the give the energy so the uh, electron. Uh, from the material surface, the material can be energized and, and be free from the bound state of the atom. Uh, so that the, the cut of energy and he kind of uh, term it, this is a quanta. So light is actually a quanta, it's a particle. And this is unthinkable. That's how I got a Nobel Prize. It's not relativity. People never realize that. Uh, he should have got several, but no, he, he got a, one Nobel Prize from photoelectric effect in I think around 1920 something. And around time, at that time, uh, young people, Debordi, his from uh, aristocrat in France, uh, then he kind of proposed that, uh, you know, a particle uh, can have a wavelength, which is described as Debordi wavelength. You see, it's, it's the prime constant uh, divided by the momentum of the particle, uh, of the, the wave or photon. Uh, they, got, they both got Nobel Prize because of this. And another Nobel Prize is Mr. Arthur Compton. And uh, he somehow did some experiment and then uh, he feel that, wait a second, he does X-ray and then he, he put on some crystal and then he moved the angle of the detector uh, and move, you know, and then he found something very bizarre. He felt, if you see that on the left, the lambda, uh, the X-ray coming in and uh, he read the, you know, the surface, the atom. And then in the classical theory, the scattered light should have the same frequency, but it's not. This puzzles so many scientists at that time. How come, you know, it should not be? So if I realize if you treat X-ray photon as a particle and it's like a collision and because the recoil energy, it lose some, something. So that's how the frequency change. So people come a big shock, you know, if they start to change and think, okay, those uh, waves, you know, can also be particle, then they can explain a lot of questions that they got several Nobel Prize. Of this. So, this which include the Newton law uh, or, or, you know, the motion to quantum mechanics, uh, harmonic oscillator, things move around. So, on the right hand side, you can see this is a very simple equation uh, in physics, you know, to showing how classical mechanics defined it. And you can see the energy level is actually continuous. So you can see uh, the picture here, the red dot. Actually, this is animation, but it's not. I'm not trying to do it here. It moves left and right continuously. But on the left, if you treat it as quantum mechanically using uh, Schrodinger equation, and you can see the energy actually has a level depends on integer n. So they, it become quantized. So this is actually the uh, the breaking point for for the quantum physics, quantum mechanics. 
uh, exper experimentally and uh, uh, theoretically. So there is a very important thing is uh, is is called the uh, particle wave duality. Uh, then this is actually experiment I was about to show. You know, Feynman was trying to show if you shine electro gun on a double slit and a detector, and you can see kind of distribution uh, of the particle uh, wave like particle. This is unthinkable by classical thing and. Uh, uh, I'm going to show this video, it's, it's fun. Okay, let me see, it's, uh, all right. It's, I'll praise it in a different way. Let me see here. Um, where was it? Okay, here. Ken, the... Um... Einstein having discovered the quantization of light, is that what led to the development of the laser? Yes, around that time, yes, yes. Because, you know, laser depend on, is the lamp amplification. Oh, so let me show this first. So this is particle, particle view of this. So you should just see this kind of particle behavior passing through the double slit. But if you consider the way, the classical way, then you will see the familiar diffraction uh, pattern. And with quantum mechanics, quantum object, probability look that way but if you put the measurement there it destroys this kind of uh, uh, duality so you will behave uh, not like a quantum object Yeah, so this is, a, uh, I found this a good uh, kind of animation for the issue here, uh, because quantum mechanic, you know, things, especially at a certain scale, uh, doesn't behave like particle or wave, it's both. Uh, so this puzzled a lot of people, but unfortunately due to this, a lot of experimental work in the 20th century, early 20th century, that's the best way, you know, to explain all things, and that's how the atomic bomb was, 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 was made. Without quantum mechanics, it was simply not possible. Of course, Einstein was not happy, but that's the way it was. Uh, so, Santoshi, if you want to say anything, please uh, just go ahead. Um, oh, that's if, all I heard I say was about the laser, because that's what led to the development of the yeah, laser. Yes, the development of the laser is a little bit, uh, because yes, the concept was there. The Ruby laser was there, but the technology was not mature enough. So I think it's only after World War II, uh, they were able to be able to, you know, materialize. They have to achieve the, it's called the population inversion. Uh, which is not easily done, you know, before World War II. So you have to achieve population inversion uh, in order to have the amplification by light, you know, light by amplification of, you know, of, of the, the photon. 
So laser is actually um, abbreviation or L is line, A is application, uh, S is CPU stimulated, uh, E is, I think it's energy, R is, uh, it's a kind of re redistribution, this kind of thing. I forgot the R, but that's basically that it is. Inversion and then redistribute it and then release the. I believe it's reflection because you have a uh, you have a semi, you have a, a, a mirror on one end and the other. Yeah, end. yeah. That that's I, the early stage. Yeah. So that so basically, laser is actually a abbreviation. It's a jargon. Uh, but yeah, the concept was there, but it is uh, the technology was not mature enough until post World War Two. Uh, so so that's uh, so okay. So if you're a prime candidate, this is also something uh, kind of puzzle people. If you uh, to explain that for a single atom, one electron system uh, for hydrogen atom, then you can solve this, you know, analytically or by computer. And you, you found this, uh, you know, energy is quantized, you know, this kind of match. And it, it, the, the energy level transition is also quantized and you have kind of selection rule. But this surprised many people. If for a classical, if the electron move around the, just like, you know, move, move around the earth, earth move around sun, you can have any continuous continuous energy level. Uh, and this is another view, you know, uh, in, in those atoms or electron, they have intrinsic spin and they also um, spin, have intrinsic spin, but they also move around uh, the, uh, the atom. And then you have the, uh, you know, uh, spin angular momentum, you have the orbital angular momentum and they inter interact with each other, you know, for, for low atomic number, you know, this is called LS coupling dominate. And for large, then you have the, uh, the individual coupling for JJ coupling and the energy level quantized. And uh, the reason why I mentioned this one is Sternkalak because it's another classical experiment as showing that once you put a magnetic field for those uh, uh, electron or something, and they come out with either spin up or spin down, it's, it's called a measurement. So this is related to the quantum computer later on. If you do the measurement and you collapse the superposition and uh, uh, you have major state either one or zero, spin up or down. And then you will shift to a, a jargon called eigenstate. It is uh, uh, this one eigenstate, another eigenstate, but it's not a superposition state. Okay, so another issue about uh, uh, quantum versus classical is you know, uh, classical computer is always good, like uh, GUI, GUI, hardware, it doesn't need quantum computer. So you'll see a picture later on by D-Wave that actually quantum computer is pictured more as a co-process like uh, uh, 287, 87 in the old days. Uh, so a lot of things like this and, uh, uh, and the quantum is not intended to be the supercomputer. It's only applied for certain problems that's most suitable for, for uh, quantum computers. Uh, then the, I will explain, you know, the uh, two to two, the end state due to uh, uh, superposition, then you can achieve exponential advantage uh, for the, you know, flaps, you know, operation, floating point operation. So some people calculated estimate for different kind of uh, quantum computer technology, qubit technology, how many qubits need to kind of show that uh, you can be the supercomputer. But this thing keeps changing, you know, as I said, because algorithm use, um, you know, and also the issue involved the stability of those systems, which we will see later on. So this just try to draw some analogy between classical computer uh, and the quantum computer. So the, the, this is kind of analogy for the, on the right is the classical computer. 
you have the gates, you know, basically zero, one, zero, one, but you have the N gate or gate, you can do the plus minus multiplication. That's the basics of the uh, computer technology these days. So say you have a chip, you have the gates inside. So similarly for quantum computer, you have the same thing, but it's slightly different. You also have the classical input uh, then, but then you have, there is called a quantum gate. Uh, similarly like the N gate or gate, they have, you know, called Hadamard gate, uh, poly S gate, you know, all kind of different CNAR gate, control gate, uh, similar analogy, but the fundamental thing are a little bit different. But once you establish the truth table of those, those gates, then you can do basically everything and more than the classical computer. Okay, so right now this day, I'm going to talk about why the quantum computer become more and more important because the, as I said, the um, Mardin, Shockley, uh, Breton, they got the Nobel Prize for the bipolar junction. The based on the theory, you know, uh, the physics phenomenon of PN junction, this is already quantum mechanical. But if you use category because diffusion uh, between the junction N-doped and uh, P-doped, uh, semiconductor, then you achieve different potential, uh, you know, then that's, uh, you can, then you apply external voltage. That's what Santoshi was talking about. Apply voltage to the chips, then you have the, achieved the zero and one and uh, the gate operation. But they are reaching some limit right now. Uh, this, for example, there's a TTL, five volts, uh, standard bipolar transistor junction, uh, circuit diagram, and uh, the actual uh, device profile. We have semiconductor, P-DOP, N-DOP, uh, it, um, you know, collector, emitter, and base. And um, it, I think in the most 20, 30 years has been shifted to CMOS technology. Uh, it's lower voltage, lower power consumption. Uh, and uh, uh, so you can see again, the device profile. This is a dominating uh, 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 technology these days. And it's actually based on the fuel effect transistor. It's kind of modified. You have the metal, uh, gate and uh, put a gate oxide uh, over there and uh, change the voltage and you change the distribution of the PN uh, dope layers and uh, you achieve the uh, uh, the potential between there. That's how you amplify things. Uh, so you can see this is a family, a transistor junction, uh, fuel effect, uh, the MOSFET and uh, uh, depreciation has all kinds of you know, variation. This is the fundamental thing of these devices. And, uh, and of course you are using the USB flash drive or the memory car uh, like Raspberry Pi or your camera as based on also semiconductor CMOS technology called end end uh, flash memory. So basically by manipulating again, the uh, dope, the dope uh, iron level, uh, chemical distribution, tunneling, and you're able to keep the uh, uh, kind of uh, electrons in certain area. Then with the change of war line, and uh, you can keep you know, the, the electron you know, uh, in certain air for a certain time. And you change it, you can erase it and you program it like an apron. So this, these are the base, base basis for our technology these days. But, you know, and the people have enjoyed that. It's called the Moore's law, which is very important for a quantum computer. Uh, Mr. Dar uh, Dr. Gordon Moore is actually Caltech. So Feynman was Caltech, you know, Gordon Moore is Caltech. If you go to uh, Caltech, you will see a statue of him uh, there. And uh, uh, he's now 92 years old. He's the founder, I think it's uh, uh, Intel. Uh, so he, the, the famous Moore's law uh, predict or says that uh, uh, every two years, you know, this, uh, the density double, you know, the, the microchip, you know, on, on a certain uh, area, it increases. Uh, 
So sometimes again, if you want to say something, just uh, speak. Yeah, up. Just a little uh, interesting tidbit here. There is a connection to aerospace uh, when it re relates to Intel and Gordon Moore and uh, Fairchild, um, Andy Grove, and all these guys. They all started out at a company called Fairchild Semiconductor, yes, Fairchild, where they, yeah. where they invented the yeah. world's first integrated circuit. And Fairchild Semiconductor was the electronics division of Fairchild Aircraft, which makes the A10 and, of course, uh, uh, Fairchild uh, uh, Republic. You know, those what was probably the A10 and the Republic made the uh, the uh, P47 Thunderbolt in World War II. And of course, uh, as a cousin, interestingly enough, uh, the AR-15 rifle was made by the Armalite Division, the Armament Division of Fairchild, as well. So these are all they're all related to each other uh, in, in, in an interesting way. Yeah, and, and if we go to Irvine, the Fairchild actually still have an office there at least a few years ago when I stopped by in Irvine near UCI. You, you, you can go there, it's very interesting, <laughs> still there. Um, okay, so Morse law is, is, is like a God law, you know, these days, you know, for somebody, people have been striving, making money off of this, keep growing, um, kind of breaking everybody's, you know, uh, people say, oh, maybe they'll reach kind of plateau or something. No, it keep growing. and. Uh, I want to show you know, a lot of companies like Samsung or like a Taiwan Semiconductor company. They are, you know, technology going down to two, even two nanometer these days. You know, the Enstrom is atomic size. You know, atomic uh, diameter is around Enstrom. And the nanometer means like uh, 50, 50 size of atom, atomic size. So that's just amazing. Um, and uh, so this, uh, the, the, this is a news, you know, because, you know, make great, America great again. So Taiwan Semiconductor Company is going to open five nanometer factory in Arizona. Uh, so you can see this kind of nanotechnology you know, chip company moving very fast and still following the Moore's law. But the company was, uh, you think it's approaching the atomic scale and the people start to see a lot of concern. What's going to happen? If we make it smaller, it's going to work or not? And, uh, and you can see that these days the chip generate a lot of heat. Another issue with the you know density of the uh, the, the BJT or CMOS in, in the per square area is getting hotter and hotter. And you know, also when you get there, then the quantum effect, the tunneling came to show up. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be very tough. You know, so the electronic industry has been trying to find the next paradigm and the ship over there. And the quantum computer is what they were thinking about. Uh, so this come come down to the, this uh, uh, bit and qubit. So we, we went through this quantum mechanic history is to just show you is uh, is is kind of first uh, is quantized. So energy level is quantized. So then the, it's described by the state and the, not by this classical case. So you can have the superposition. It can point anywhere in the sphere and uh, uh, in the in the qubit. Um, so that's why they get the advantage of this. Um, so next, I'm going to to tell you the important person. You already, you know, this uh, Feynman. You already saw that uh, Einstein. But you know, there are a couple of people, you know, that actually paved the foundation of uh, our quantum computer these days, which are very important. Uh, these are in text, but I, I have a few picture for for those people. Uh, so I don't have a picture for Yuri Manning, but you know, this is Russia, so we don't uh, elaborate a little bit. We can talk about him a little bit more later. So basically, I'm going to show a couple of pictures here. So basically, Peter uh, Alan Turing is a very well-known uh, British uh, mathematician, and uh, he, you know, there's a, a Turing machine, and there's American mathematician uh, Church. So there's a called the Church-Turing uh, kind of uh, hypothesis. Is basically it's complicated, but you can basically say that for each, 
you know, kind of a problem, there's a corresponding Turing machine uh, that can have the algorithm to solve it. So basically that kind of pay the foundation that any problem you can kind of have the machine, a computer or kind of uh, algorithm, you know, quantum computer or anything to solve the, the issue. So the, the, now we come more closer than, of course, you already saw Feynman, you know, 1959 and 1982, very end of uh, uh, Yuri Manning was around 91, 1982, similar role as Richard Feynman in Russia. Uh, and uh, Russia also have their own quantum computer as well these days. So two important person, one is Peter Short, you will uh, hear a lot. And uh, there's uh, David Deutsch. You know, there's another person in India, India uh, is called Grover. Uh, he's important for breaking the code, you know, for hacking things and those kind of things. But uh, Peter Shore is a, a scientist, MIT, and this algorithm basically is, um, is a quantum algorithm for factoring exponentially faster than the best current node algorithm running on classic computer. But because, so because of this, people got very scared because if you, if you can break the prime number or number so fast uh, using the uh, qubits and uh, they can break any code very fast. So got people, Type about this quantum hacking, you know, quantum things. But you will see later the, how the RSA respond to this. And uh, uh, David Deutsch, basically, he was uh, um, is basically he was uh, paved the foundation for for the uh, uh, quantum Turing machine. You know, the architecture for, for it. Uh, he also tried to attempt it to kind of prove it in a certain way, but he, he didn't make a, a, a computer out of it. It is a kind of theory and the proof that it should work and pave the uh, architecture. These are two keepers in the modern day, um, and they happened in the 80s and the 90s, very recent. And uh, another two person is uh, Paul uh, Benioff, and uh, from Argon, a physicist, and uh, he, you know, basically demonstrate um, using quantum mechanics model, you know, uh, uh, computer, you know, the, for, for the, you know, pave the way for the first quantum computer. Uh, is is uh, using shorting the equation and the Turing machine. That's from uh, Paul. Uh, but make, who make it more? You know, the first. Well, there are a lot of people making quantum computers. Uh, but really, the first demonstrate was the two qubit uh, using you know kind of any physical system was these two scientists, a physics professor and um, uh, you know uh, Dr. Jones and then Dr. Uh, Mikhail Moska. Uh, you know, so they build the first one, then quickly IBM Almaden uh, by Dr. Isa Chan and uh, uh, Mark Kubinek at UC Berkeley, you know, uh, and with MIT and Stanford, they build the same system, two qubit NMR quantum computer to solve the uh, David Deutsch, uh, you know, the pro uh, proposed issue to prove the quantum computer can work. Um, so this is actually the fundamental thing and uh, there's a big name in this uh, industry. Uh, another big person, but it's not really big, but it's, it's uh, because this uh, uh, very, very genius Indian American uh, scientist, uh, uh, Kumar Grover, he kind of invented uh, a Grover database search algorithm. So it's hailed as, uh, you know, you know, as uh, the kind of God, you know, for, for this kind of uh, internet search and also, uh, you know, code breaking. Um, so th these are by words, you know, if you want more detail, you know, so, so, um, then of course you have the key person. You also have to see the key opponent or what they are, you know, competing against, not definitely not our laptop, you know, they're competing actually the fastest supercomputer in the world. 
right now, according to news, the number one seems to be Japan, but you know, we always talking about uh, the uh, IBM uh, summit uh, on the left and uh, they keep breaking their own uh, record. But you know, the Fukaku, the Japanese uh, Fukaku seems to have uh, been doing very well and um, uh, maybe hard to compute the number, but they're both, both you know, fastest uh, computer they achieved. The number just keep, they have 10 to 20 years, 18 zeros, you know, uh, trillion, quintillion, you know, those number keep growing, it's never just giga. So these are the opponent they have compared against. Uh, so, okay, so this is the quantum superposition. So you see the diagram for the sphere, it's called a black sphere, but put it in mathematically or kind of way to write it down is that if you have a system, spin up means zero, spin down means one, then, then you have the coefficient to describe the superposition of these two states uh, in the qubit. Uh, but overall, the square of the coefficient is the probability of the qubit is in certain spin up or spin down state. Uh, remember the double state picture, you know, it could appear in this and that area, the inform uh, probability distribution. But overall, the probability conserved as added has to be one. So another important concept is in quantum entanglement. I will talk about how the basically achieve it. it uh, people talk about this a lot, but it's actually theoretically, yes. You know, like Stuart was talking about long distance, it could still have, you know, connected state that puzzle people, how come we can transmit uh, so fast. But in reality, it's not that easy to create the entangled state. Uh, so basic entanglement is the ability quantum particle to relay their measurement result with each other. It's actually, if you look into it, it's actually not too complicated, but because the way the news media are spreading, it make it very confusing. Uh, but this is an important feature because this is how the exponential you saw. If each of the qubit can be entangled together, so you can have exponential uh, uh, power for uh, the parallelism, you know, simultaneous, you know, uh, computing power. Uh, but you will see, you know, practically it's not easy to make. So for example, uh, this is a well-known Bell state is one uh, kind of most uh, stable uh, entangled state. Um, so it's composed both zero and one, but uh, because a certain uh, way you physically made it and uh, you put a circuit for it, it become very stable. So what happened is if you realize in, in one uh, qubit and uh, this uh, is in a zero state and the other one has to be in a zero state if you are entangled. But it is very nice and people got scared, you know, what is that? But the, the problem is if you look into it, I asked several experts in this, the problem is that our technology these days, I don't know about universe, and maybe universe something already created there, but if people made, made entangled state by many different ways, it's very difficult and the lifetime is very short. So honestly speaking, it doesn't exist the problem that you transmit the, you know, simultaneously, you know, those, um, uh, breaking the law of, you know, uh, fastest speed of light. Um, basically, for example, this is one of, uh, it's a nonlinear optics. You know, it's in the days of pre-sunken nonlinear crystal. Uh, you create a uh, downstream, uh, it's called a parametric down conversion. Uh, then you create the entangled photon. That's what the Chinese is doing. But these are not photon, as you know, there's no mass. You know, the, what it was entangled was the state you know, the quantum state of this photo is not actually even transmit anything is the state uh, of, of the quantum state of each of the items. And they, they are not uh, very long life. So there are a lot of issues. Practically, 
the concern is not there, but you know, the, on the news, they already don't tell you those things. So method of creating entanglement, one is change of polarization using nonlinear optics, laser, uh, nonlinear crystal, uh, but you can also use it like, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, this, you know, like um, superconductor quantum dot, that's what the Japan, Japanese has been using quantum dot. Um, but again, this is very long lived, it's very difficult to make, but if they can make it, it's proven. Uh, so, so that's the hurdle that quantum computer has to get through. Okay, so this is just a little bit more. Uh, uh, again, I, I, all those things come from public domain. Domain sometimes I borrow from Wikipedia just for faster, you know, uh, uh, picture. So this is the nonlinear optic, you know, way, you know, of doing things. So it's not violating any physics principle. It's just the way it is, you know. And it's not try to beam up, you know, a person, you know, like Star Trek or, you know, try to move the uh, mass or energy faster than that. No, no, that's not it. Is it's basically just just to have the state one photon and the other photon, they are linked, the information are linked, that's all it is. And the another important issue, when you, you see the, the animation, if you start to measure it, uh, put the eye next to the sleeve, it kind of collapsed the uh, superposition. So any noise or measurement, you will collapse the quantum state. You'll become either zero or one. Remember the uh, stern crack uh, picture I showed, put a magnetic field, up and down, you, you will only see zero and one after the measurement or after in, interference. Uh, and noise is a very big issue these days. You know, Microsoft tried to do a lot of things, topo, topo, topographic thing, you know, wrap things around uh, the chemical, uh, they use it for the qubit. Um, there are several important jargon or important application. You know, you will hear a lot of things. One is the super dense coding uh, in which you, instead of using say, for example, instead of using two classical bits to transmit information, you can use say one qubit or more exaggerate, you know, as the number goes down, you can use fewer uh, qubits to achieve the same thing. You need uh, so many uh, classical bits to do it. But in doing that, you need to have cre create entangle, uh, called a bell pair, which is entangled state. And they pass through certain kind of gate, Hadama gate, Sina gate, and then you have to reverse image and send a classical bit. Uh, that's how we do it. If you can do all this, you know, then you can achieve, you know, super dense coding, which means, but literally, you can send a lot of information by using very few qubits. So that's all it is, you know, nothing very complicated. Another issue is quantum teleportation. Again, this is not trying to teleport mass or energy. And uh, also there's an issue, people think, okay, uh, in quantum computer, you might have heard that some people say you cannot clone uh, a qubit. Uh, you cannot delete a qubit. Uh, I think that they have something to bypass it. They do sometimes entanglement and the interact way of kind of reproduce a state of a qubit. But of course, they cannot copy the exact uh, photon or electron, uh, but they can kind of create the same state on another electron. That's why they, they are trying to do. Uh, so the teleportation is a uh, similar thing. So uh, just some, you, you, you have some information you want to pass through and uh, you have um, uh, basically this is to send a qubit not for person and the, and the, this quantum teleportation honestly is not simultaneous it's not instantaneous and again you have to first create you know entangled state you know you see this you know thing and like when you see this meter like thing it's called a measurement 
And uh, then the process is input the information, then entangle uh, the state, uh, then you measure it. Then you send the classical, uh, classical transmission to the receiver. And uh, then the receiver already have the uh, splitted uh, entangled state, then they will double check, you know, what is your measurement and they compare their, theirs. And uh, they, they, then they, this way, then they have the information uh, already in their hand, but they kind of decrypt it. You know, so that kind of, it, it, it's kind of reproduce a state, you know, um, of, of, of say an atom or photon, uh, that's split from the entangled in, in uh, initial entangled state, uh, then to achieve the same state as the sender. That's all it is. Then you actually require the classical transmission, and it's not instantaneous. So it's absolutely not what the media was saying. The Chinese can uh, beam beam you up. That's definitely not never. Okay. So then the, another important thing, other than super dense coding teleportation, another thing you. Sorry, before, right? The Aerospace Corporation put on the website the quantum key distribution is for the quantum cryptography. Uh, so, because you can carry a lot of information in a qubit, so people are afraid. And, uh, uh, you know, the financial and stock market, those things, aerospace defense contractor, their code will be broken once the supercomputer get to, uh, in fact, pretty soon. But you can see the response, you, you can look at the website itself, the RSA, NSA. You know, National Security Agency, they actually analyze this and they come to the conclusion, they are not going to support the quantum key distribution. Uh, they post their reasons. Uh, they say this is the only a partial solution. Uh, it's need a special purpose equipment, which is true, uh, in infrastructure costs. And actually by this, you increase inside threat risk. And, uh, you know, you have to securing those uh, quantum keys is actually a challenge, it's a big hurdle. Uh, it's not completely mature yet. Um, you know, then you have this and you kind of cause the risk of denial survey. You will see actually these say the S SSL, you see the internet protocol, they start to explore this quantum uh, secure layer. Uh, but anyway, the conclusion then says, no, we, we don't support this. Instead, they come up with something called the post uh, quantum with cryptography and, or called a quantum resistance. Uh, they have some kind of algorithm. Uh, and, uh, you know, if people use Shor's algorithm or uh, gross algorithm to attack, to break the code, uh, the NSA actually proposed a post-quantum resistant uh, algorithm, you know, uh, to, so you can see here, this is what the RSA view, they work with the National Institute of Standard. The picture that uh, the PKI algorithm uh, a code will be broken by quantum computer in, 2026, 31, uh, assuming the uh, universal computer will be available. <clears throat> and uh, so, <clears throat> so then, the, then you have to worry about this. Then you have the <clears throat> different kind of uh, email security, website, <clears throat> security level. Uh, the NIST, what I heard was that they are putting uh, some kind of, you cannot say contest, but a kind of proposal uh, by the end of this year or early next year, it's, uh, it's a post quantum resistant cryptography was supposed to prevent or delay uh, the quantum attack, you know, breaking the code. So what RSA and the National Institute of Standard will tell you is safe, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not right now and even later with the post-quantum resistance, they don't need the quantum the key distribution. But you can see a lot of you know, aerospace companies still very interested in this for special application. So now we are talking about, you know, some experts say maybe not to say too much about 
on the supremacy, but this is also the way for us, you know, to understand what um, <clears throat> uh, the issue issues are and what are the existing system. So as you see from the more slow, more compact of the uh, uh, electronics, you know, integrated circuits, then you have a lot of material issue, tunneling, spin orbital interaction, and um, uh, then you have to optimize the circuit and there's that issue of entropy heat generating issue is very difficult to overcome. But if you can achieve the qubits, you know, fewer qubits and they actually by nature, they don't do the same way as the existing microelectronics. They don't generate so much heat. Um, and uh, so, so basically you also, but it, it depends on the suitable system. It's not for all the, unless it's an universal quantum computer. Uh, so that's uh, what I'm trying to do. So the, the next few slides is a, a few companies that have their <clears throat> uh, uh, doing uh, quantum supremacy, they claim, for example, we talked about the 2000 um, Sycamore, the Google 19, 54, 53 qubit using nonlinear superconducting resonance. This also comes down, how do you achieve physically the supercomputer? Then you can see the IPM, you know, they were doing superconducting. And the China, this is Canada company, Shenandoah, is doing photonics. Uh, then there's IBM, mostly supercomputing. I think they have more qubits, but this is just the history of what they were doing. Uh, then you can see IBM again. Uh, I think that's just early. This is a, 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 a attempt for the companies to uh, achieve the quantum uh, support. But these days they kind of toned down a little bit because, you know, somebody, change algorithm on supercomputer, they can do much better. So their claim may not be true. For example, Google was, was seriously challenged you know, for their claim for super uh, uh, supremacy. So the D-Way, VOC is played very important role. They work with USC and the Lockheed Martin. <clears throat> and the Google verified DF actually is making the real quantum computers. Uh, they are using uh, superconducting things and they're using a method very different from others. If you look at the website, they can achieve like 2,000, 5,000 qubit, but, uh, but it's a little bit different from, and they, but this system can only be used for specific problems. It's not universal, not what IBM has been trying to do. <clears throat> so that's why they can, but they use a phenomenon called the quantum tunneling and icing model. So they apply a field and uh, so for classical simulation or optimization process, you have, you're trying to find a solution in, uh, for a local minimum and global minimum. But for classical ways, you have to spend a lot of time, classical computers, time, and you, you cannot pass through this barrier. You have to try to do a lot of simulation, you know, increase the sampling. But, you know, they, this is a well-established method using icing model and the quantum tunneling. They, in a simulation, apply a small field and uh, allow you to tunnel through. And you can see it's much faster to reach the minimum. You know, so this is how they achieve uh, by doing this, they, they claim they can do much faster to find the, uh, the global and the global minimum. <clears throat> but the problem has to be very, spe uh, very specific, especially involve optimization. Uh, and there's some, you know, assumptions say, you know, variables are discrete, it cannot be continuous, the op optimization is quadratic, uh, the object function is quadratic, and or constraint can be efficiently represented by a quadratic objective. You know, this or the deep detail. So uh, they're doing a lot of business. They sold the first commercial co quantum computer, but they are very limited. Uh, but they, they are trying to, you know, um, increase the qubits. 
uh, the latest I heard is 5,000, you know, to overcome those things. Uh, yeah, 5,000. So obviously they have been doing great jobs. But again, uh, D-Web is for spe specific problems, not for all the universal cases. And they utilize a situation called the quantum annealing, which kind of uh, brief idea. And uh, those companies, many companies also uh, focus on, you know, SDK, you know, uh, software development. For example, D-Way has a very famous ocean software. Uh, and this is what I'm saying. At the bottom, you can see CPU and the GPUs. But now there's a term called the QPUs, the quantum uh, process unit. So that's what I said. They were picturing using uh, quantum computer as a coprocessor, like all this mass process processor or the graphical process, but not intended to replace uh, this classical computer. And there's no such intention. You know, it uh, has to be work together. Okay, so uh, as I said, some company trying to develop software to work with their uh, common computer. And some company, they don't have their own quantum computer or spend money on it, but they're develop developing algorithm. Uh, Microsoft, you know, uh, you know, we can see D-Wave, Ocean, IBM, uh, one qubit, um, uh, just lots of this, you know, a lot of software, different things. And uh, as I said, there's a, a lot of challenges because in the next 10, 20 years, um, you know, they, they kind of start to see the, 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 the verge of claiming the quantum supremacies, but uh, the supercomputer is also developing very fast. Uh, the change of algorithm, computer science also change a lot of uh, uh, claims. So people really say you probably need to go up to a couple hundred, you know, thousand or even tens of thousands, especially if you want to simulate, like you see earlier, the, the chemical. And if you want to simulate each of the electron atoms, then you need to have, you know, almost equivalent number of, of the, uh, uh, the, the qubits in order to be able to simulate the nature. Uh, so another issue is most of those qubits cub uh, need low temperature, you know, and, uh, and because of those issues, only those big companies can afford doing that. And uh, mostly they provide this for cloud computing. And uh, you can start to use it for like five qubits or uh, a few qubits on the cloud, but uh, you are going to compete with many other users, uh, but it's very limited. Uh, then it says, uh, of course, these days are so-called edge computing, so there may be some kind of local uh, possibilities. So here are a couple physical processes you can do iron trap, Joseph junction, superconductor, quantum dot, dot or diamond defect or quantum annealing. Uh, but quantum annealing is not for universal quantum computer. And uh, so this is the copying process. Corona is not exactly the same, but there are a lot of great potential. So just quickly summarize that uh, there are a lot of advantage. You know, there are a lot of computation, like you heard that uh, especially optimization uh, optimization applied to machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, anything related to this nature, it, it will be good, you know, to use quantum computer. And also the things for simulating natures, like chemicals, uh, medicine, you know, or search, like you heard, the, the Grover uh, search algorithm and uh, cryptography, uh, uh, you know, the quantum key distribution, even though RSA denied, but, you know, there's also some kind of advantage. And the radar, honestly, people are doing radar uh, using quantum computation. You know, I already mentioned artificial, artificial intelligence and machine learning basically is kind of optimization process. We do it by hand, they just do it faster. Uh, so, and uh, so it is uh, some disadvantage, as I mentioned, it heavily depends on algorithm. 
So quantum computer depends on good algorithm to use it. And uh, they need low temperature. Some of it's almost as minus, uh, uh, you know, 460 degree Fahrenheit or 42 uh, or minus 273. That means 0 0.015 or 13 Kelvin degree. Uh, and this not really open to a public, you know, yeah, they, they have some cloud thing you can use, but it's just for trial. Uh, and they, uh, they are selling a system, but it's ultra expensive. So, but next 10, 20 years is key. And the internet security, you know, so there's certainly, you know, it's a, it's a very important issue. But if you hear what RSA is trying to do. Okay, this is a, a quick uh, summary. So it's important, it's on the market. Aerospace company has been doing, doing it without, uh, you know, much people paying attention. Raytheon, you know, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Honeywell, you know, you know HR Laboratories and, uh, you know, Booth Allen Hamilton. I'm pretty sure Boeing, same too. Um, it's not intended to replace classical computer. Uh, it's an advantage, but high cost for now. Uh, you know, uh, so for us, we have been trying to debug, you know, the related program because it's relevant to aerospace and STEM. Uh, so we are trying to develop uh, like uh, materials demo and uh, you are coming, uh, come up uh, uh, as it goes. So this just, you know, some kind of additional thing, you know, basically, you know, the discussion is here uh, up to this point, but this is, I, I mentioned the first 1998, the first uh, quantum computer was built uh, this, uh, using the nuclear magnetic resonance system. This is an example of why uh, quantum mechanics come in. Because if you apply the field, if you don't apply the field, it's a superposition of different state. But if you apply the field, the energy split, uh, energy quantized. Uh, so that's, uh, then, you, then you can, you know, by doing manipulating the uh, chemicals, uh, or the atoms and that uh, you can uh, achieve the qubit, but you can see it's very high maintenance. You know, look at those cryogenic, you know, thing is uh, every day you consume a lot of things and uh, equipment, environment. So, yeah, so that's uh, what I have. I have a couple of slides, but that's just for if, if we need it. So that's what it is. So this is now it's open to the floor. So if any question, discussion, this, this is intended to kick off the AW Los Angeles Las Vegas section. Um, quantum computing, quantum communication program and events and the discussion and the further maybe like uh, outreach or education uh, stuff. So we are doing it, you know, just let people know that's the main message for this. So Santosh, please go ahead. I want to apologize. I misspoke earlier. The R, you are correct. And laser is actually for radiation, not reflection. Yeah, yeah, radiation. You're right. The reflection yeah, is involved internally with the Ruby laser, but R stands for uh, radiation. Yes, yes. The, the, the most important thing is, is uh, light generated by the inversion of the population and then emit uh, the radiation. Uh, that is the laser light. Yeah, they, they consider light is, you see, there's a very interesting light was considered electromagnetic radiation, just like it is, it's like electromagnetic wave, it's just different frequency. Uh, but now you can view those things also as particle. So that's how the uh, quantum computing try to take advantage of. So I see a couple, yeah, radiation, yes. Oh, mouse, sorry. So, you know, I, I, uh, it's, uh, the quantum computer is actually kind of very interesting, but, you know, there are various technologies uh, that has, you know, been um, explored. So far, the Chinese is uh, ahead. 
uh, they are using the photonics, uh, nonlinear optics to achieve this uh, entangled state. And they do it with satellite, with different locations, Austria, different places. Uh, they, they kind of prove that it can uh, entangle state could be very apart, but nothing to be scared because you knew there's uh, there and that those very difficult to create and it's not very long life. So there is no practical application um, and, uh, as for now. And there's definitely not the, you know, the, the, the beam me up Scotty, like a Star Trek is nowhere, you know, it's not like that. And it's basically to kind of reproduce a state to uh, remote uh, entangled uh, photon. Uh, it's kind of doing that kind of thing. So it's not actually sending uh, kind of energy over there, but it is kind of because doing this way, you can kind of uh, uh, put the information over, but it's kind of recreate the state over there, but, but you have to create the entangled state in the very beginning. And uh, you split the bell pair and then they split. So it, it's definitely not from nowhere, but in space that might be different. You know, the universe created creation that might have some existing um, entangled something over there, graviton or something like that. But but on Earth, for man made it's not the case. So there's nothing to be scared, but there's a competition, you know, uh, using different technology who might actually win the, uh, win the supremacy and uh, uh, get the market, you know. But from this kind of trend, you see even Amazon is trying to put some effort. So it looks like even if somebody uh, achieve quantum supremacy, it will be heavily challenged and the other company will follow and uh, it's probably not one will take all the market, but uh, different technology will be much cheaper and much stable. Uh, and a lot of effort have been put in, in, into is the noise issue. Um, so so it's, it's, uh, uh, it's fun, uh, but I think it's very good, you know, uh, like education process and it's also very good to try to see how it goes and catch a train and uh, maybe, you know, there's some opportunity in, in um, you know, different companies, including aerospace, but uh, uh, a, a lot of things is still in development, uh, but it's good to catch up. Maybe it will come kind of, it's a mainstream uh, pretty soon. Yeah, so, so okay, I see Mark raise hand. So Mark, go ahead. Yeah, if, if a, <clears throat> this is all theoretical, um, if a visitor from another galaxy came to Earth and entangled our space with their, however, entangled it, then they went back to their galaxy. Could they be in communication from their galaxy to our Earth? Is that possible? Okay. The, the, yeah, as I said, if it's something in the universe, that's a creation of the universe, that's already like, like a, you know, like a creation, uh, like a 3K background radiation, those kind of things. If it's Big Bang, it's already there, then this is possible, you know. But if you're saying that it's, it's somehow the alien has the technology to create, you know, the long-lived entangled state when they travel before they set up their journey and are passing light years, you know, thousand, you know, ten thousand million light year and come to Earth. First of all, the entangled state they created might have vanished. So that's why I'm trying to say. So then you assume they have such technology can uh, uh, like a god, you know, they can have this uh, forever entangled state. Theoretically, they have to send uh, some kind of uh, communication uh, to the alien here on Earth, tell them what they did, you know, they have to perform some kind of measurement on their end and tell this, this alien that they did something and then they compare, then you can achieve the uh, teleportation. So yes, it's possible, but it's not right away. 
yeah, it's possible, but you still need uh, some kind of way to tell the alien here uh, that uh, uh, something happened. You know, they did measurement, please compare. And if it's, it's the same, then yes, then you achieve the teleportation. Uh, okay. So you, you see what I'm trying to say? But if yeah. it's universe that's been created by you know, Big Bang or God, you know, there's already forever there is entropy wise, it's stable. Yes, it's, it's, it's very likely, but if it may, may, it has first condition, it has to be long dead. Secondly, you have to a second way of communication to tell what and the mother star, mother planet they did and to tell this alien here. Yes, you can do it, but it will come with a very high price for doing that. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, no problem, no problem. It's basically creating a state that initially entangled, uh, then you kind of kind of relay that information uh, to the other pair that is long distance. Uh, but technically, there are a lot of hurdles. Uh, but theoretically, it's possible if it's entropy, everything works out, you know, like a universe that, that might happen. But if, if for, for intelligence beings that uh, has to have very advanced so far, we are very primitive pre to create the entangled state for even a, a couple milliseconds, or you know, it's, it's already extremely very difficult. So, so what I understand is you're saying communication is possible if you have the technology. To be sure, yes, you have two two key technology. One is you have to have to create a long-lived entangled state. You know, you have to have this technology to begin with. Uh, because all the teleportation noting began with entangled stare. They split the entangled uh, pair and uh, one carry long distance and one that's how you achieve the uh, teleportation. The second thing hurdle is that you have to communicate somehow and uh, that is not going to be <laughs> faster than speed of light. So that, uh, that uh, civilization has to have another uh, high tech in order to relay that kind of information uh, so in, in that, and then you can, yeah, you, you, it can be achieved, but it needs to be much, much higher civilization or uh, technology than uh, we currently are. Right, right. Thank you for pointing that out. Very yeah, don't, don't worry, nothing, nothing, it's not going, China is going to send, uh, you know, beam me out, Scott, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So any further question or anything you want to discuss or anything you've heard? It's kind of fun topic. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things I didn't put there because I realized, you know, time is short. I just want to uh, summarize quickly what's going on, what's in the market. And uh, uh, the main purpose I said, is uh, important for AWA Los Angeles that's big, big section to have this event. Uh, we have been trying to do it for three or four years, but unfortunately the speaker just cannot um, commit, uh, you know, in time, and uh, we might have some, you know, somebody soon, but I think it's a good time, you know, uh, you know, to, to let everybody know that it's going on, and that we are ready, we are prepared to have a further program, either education or outreach, or, you know, this, uh, you know, further professional, you know, discussion on this, any new development. For example, if Lockheed Martin, you know, comes with something, you know, on the news, and that would be worth a very fun uh, event of discussion, you know, about it or aerospace corporation, you know, some kind of satellite communication breakthrough um, or cybersecurity, you know, there's a battle between RSA and the, the quantum uh, scientists, you know, the, the, you know this, uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. When I saw the news, I couldn't believe it because RSA kind of, kind of refused. <laughs> they don't care, <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they, they don't want this quantity 
come up with this uh, counter measure. They have this uh, <clears throat> uh, quantum resistance, post quantum. It, it, some people said it's actually it's going to be more the mainstream instead of quantum computer. Uh, uh, you know the key distribution uh, in terms of this kind of security, internet security, or whatever thing. So yeah. So and that's another thing. And uh, just to people know to rest assured, there's nothing to worry. You know, because the quantum, yes, they can do that, but they need time. And by the time uh, they can break everybody's code, the financial code and the, the RSA and the National Institute Standard already have a, a, a very good measure to counter it. Either the Peter Schultz algorithm or the Kumar Rho uh, uh, search uh, algorithm. So they just tell you, no worry, There's, they are ready. There's nothing to worry about. Yeah, I've been trying to do this, you know, trying to get better because, you know, we have members because they come read the news that's just so scary, uh, but the news exaggerates so much and uh, that uh, doesn't make any sense, you know, so I think it's better to come down to end. And that's also pointed out to AIWA is, and also Las Vegas section, that's, uh, that's Los Angeles Las Vegas is very uh, pay atten paying attention to this and trying to, um, you know, advance in the, in the related technology science understanding and education. Uh, this is very relevant. As you said, Richard Feynman is very related to aerospace and as Kuma uh, Santoshi mentioned that uh, Fairchild, you know, was founded by uh, Gordon Moore and uh, those uh, founder in the early stage of the Intel, uh, heavily related to A10, you know, and all the other things. Uh, so it's uh, highly aerospace and it's very important. And a lot of uh, research institute and uh, company, they actually put space, you know, not only aerospace application, uh, that's one of the agenda, but they have to find the right algorithm and so the, to prove that it, it makes sense to spend money. Uh, why you cannot just use the classical computer and uh, you know, supercomputer is getting faster and faster. So why can you just, just use it? Why do you have to do the quantity? You have to come up with a justifiable reason for doing that. But as we point out, a lot of problems simulating natures, you know, especially in the atomic molecular scale, uh, it's already reaching the limit of the supercomputer, fastest one, and the quantum is a, uh, a solution. And uh, when the microelectronic, if they want to keep down the Moore's law, you cannot go to, you know, Enstrom, you know, atomic, it's just, you cannot do that. So there's a lot of heat issue, uh, manufacturing issue, then the quantum computer is the way out, is the way out. Uh, and uh, they can keep continuing the growth and prosperity, making more money, you know, enjoy uh, faster computing. If you if you, they jump to a quantum computer at the right time, they can keep the uh, the growth uh, of the Morse row keep going. Uh, but they see a problem right now. It's already five nanometer, two nanometer, one nanometer. You cannot be the answer. Then how how are you going to do? You know, it's already a lot of difficulties, material wise, you know, manufacturing wise, uh, you know, th those kind of things. Okay, so. Um, yeah, so I think this, uh, if, if, if you have no question, you're welcome, just uh, 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 say goodbye and uh, you know, leave our, uh, stay in touch. And next week we have the space architecture event. Um, but you know, since you are here, I just want to play this assignment video. I was usually about to show about quantum mechanics because he explained it very well. Uh, in this issue is not very long. But if you have to leave, please, please go and I'll just enjoy the Saturday. Uh, but if you have a few minutes, uh, it's fun to see how he explain those things uh, about this uh, double slate and uh, the basis of 
quantum mechanics. Hmm. I'll put it somewhere. Oh, here, here. It's a. Uh, electrons it's a lecture 1964 in Cornell University In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. But the one important odd characteristic is that they often seem to become more and more unreasonable, and more and more intuitively far from obvious. To take an example is the relativity theory in which, uh, for instance, the proposition is that if, two, if you think that two things occur at the same time, that's just a subjective opinion. Someone else could conclude that those two events, those two events, one was before the other, and that simultaneity is merely a subjective impression. Now, there's no reason why this should be otherwise, really. The things of the direct everyday experience involve large numbers of particles or involve things moving very slowly or involve other conditions that are very special and represent, in fact, a very limited experience with nature. It's only through, it's a small section only that one gets of natural phenomena from a direct experience. It's only through the refined measurements and careful experimentation that we can get a wider vision. And then we see unexpected things. We see things that are far from what we would guess. We see things that are very far from what we would, could have imagined. And so our imagination is stretched to the utmost, not as in fiction to imagine things which aren't really there, but our imagination is stretched to the utmost just to comprehend those things which are there. And it's this kind of a situation that I want to talk about tonight. Start, for instance, with the history of light. At first, light was seen to behave, it would appear to behave 
very much like a rain of particles, of corpuscles, like rain. Bullets from a gun, same idea. Then with further research, it was clear that it was, it was not right, but that light actually behaved like waves, like water waves, for instance. And then in the 20th century, on further research, it appeared that light actually behaved in many ways again, like particles. In the photoelectric effect, you could count these particles, they're called photons now, and so forth. Again, electrons, when they were first discovered, behaved exactly like particles, bullets, very simple. Further research showed in electron diffraction experiments and so on that they behaved like waves. And as time went on, there was a growing confusion between the, in the question of how the things really behave, the waves or particles, particles or waves, but everything looked like both. Now this growing confusion was resolved in 1925 or 26 with the advent of the correct equations for quantum mechanics. And now we know how the particles, how the electrons and how light behave, but what can I call it? I can say they behave like a particle wave or they behave in typical quantum mechanical manner. There isn't any word for it. If I say they behave like particles, they give the wrong impression. If I say they behave like waves, they behave in their own inimitable way, <laughs> which technically could be called the quantum mechanical way. They behave in a way that is like nothing that you have ever seen before. <laughs> Your experience with things that you have seen before is inadequate, is incomplete. The behavior of things on a very tiny scale is simply different. They do not behave just like particles. They do not behave just like waves. Atoms do not behave like weights hanging on a spring and oscillating nor do they behave like miniature representations of the solar system with little planets going around in orbits, nor does it appear to be somewhat like a cloud or fog of some sort surrounding a nucleus. It behaves like nothing that you've seen before. Well, there's one simplification, at least. Electrons behave exactly the same in this respect as photons. That is, they're both screwy, but in exactly the same way. <laughs> How they behave, therefore, takes a great deal of imagination to appreciate because we are going to describe something which is different than anything you know about. This, in that respect at least, makes this perhaps the most difficult lecture of the series in the sense that it's abstract, in, in the sense that it is not close to experience. And I cannot avoid that. Were I to give a series of lectures on the character of physical law and to leave out from this series, the description of the actual behavior of particles on a small scale, I would certainly not be doing the job because uh, this thing is completely characteristic of all of the particles of nature and is a universal character. And this is, if you want to hear about the character of physical law, essential to talk about this particular aspect. So it will be difficult. But the difficulty really is psychological and exists in the perpetual torment that results from your saying to yourself, but how can it be like that? Which really is a reflection of an uncontrolled, but I say utterly vain, desire to see it in terms of some analogy with something familiar. I will not describe it in terms of an analogy with something familiar. I'll simply describe it. 
There was a time uh, when the newspapers said that only 12 men understood the theory of relativity. I don't believe there ever was such a time. There might have been a time when only one man did, because he's the only guy who caught on when he, before he wrote his paper. But after people read the paper, a lot of people kind of understood the theory of relativity in some way or other, but more than 12. On the other hand, I think I can safely say that uh, nobody understands quantum mechanics. <laughs> now, if you appreciate this and don't take the lecture too seriously that you really have to understand in terms of some model what I'm going to describe, and just relax and enjoy it, I'm going to tell you what nature behaves like, and if you will simply admit that maybe she does behave like this, you will find her a delightful, entrancing thing. So that's the way to look at the lectures, not to try to understand. Well, you have to understand the English, of course. <laughs> but uh, in any sense, in terms of something else, don't keep saying to yourself, if you can possibly avoid it, but how could it be like that? Because you'll get down a drain. You'll get down into a blind, blind alley in which nobody has yet escaped. Nobody knows how it can be like that. So then just let me describe to you the behavior of electrons or of photons in their typical quantum mechanical way. Now, the way I'm going to do this is by a mixture of analogy and contrast. If I made a pure analogy, we would fail. So it must be by analogy and contrast to things that you're familiar with. And so I make it by analogy and contrast, first, to the behavior of particles for which I will use bullets, and second, to the behavior of waves for which I will use, say, water waves or sound waves. So we begin first to discuss in a particular, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invent a particular experiment and first tell how it would behave, what the situation would be in that experiment using particles, what you would expect to happen if the waves were involved, and then what happens when there are actually electrons or photons in the system. And uh, I will just take this one experiment which has been designed to contain all of the mystery of quantum mechanics to put you up against the paradoxes and mysteries and peculiarities of nature 100%. Any other situation in quantum mechanics, it turns out, can always be explained afterwards by saying, you remember the case of the experiment with the two holes? It's the same thing. And so I'm going to tell you about the experiment with the two holes, which is the general mystery, contains a, is, does contain the general mystery, I am avoiding nothing. I am bearing nature in her most elegant and uh, difficult form. So they start with bullets. Then all the experiments are going to be in the same general design, so I'll draw it this way. Suppose that we have some source of bullets, which is just represent the source, which we call the source, and is in fact, in the case of bullets, a machine gun. <laughs> then we have a plate in front here with a hole in it for the bullets to come out of, and this plate, in the case of bullets, is armor plate. <laughs> then a long distance from here, we have another plate, which I'm drawing only a short distance because I haven't got room on the blackboard for everything, but this distance is supposed to be much longer in proportion to the width. Please expand that, that's a small point. And it has two holes in it. That's the famous two-hole business. I am gonna talk a lot about these holes, so I'll talk about this hole as number one hole and the other hole as number two. And I'm only drawing it in two dimensions. You can, if you imagine, wish to imagine these as round holes in three dimensions, but just say this is a cross section. 
And then again a long distance away, but we'll draw it relatively short distance because of the limitations of this blackboard. We have another screen here, which is just a backstop of some sort, into an, on which we can put in various places what I will call a detector. And they will mark that detector. <laughs> which in the case of the bullets is a box of sand into which the bullets will be caught and we can count them. That's the detector for bullets. <laughs> I don't want to have to redraw the experiment each time, so I'll label everything in this way, and then we'll be able to catch on to situations uh, for different cases. And also, I'm going to do experiments in which I count how many bullets come into this detector or box of sand when the box is here or here or here or here. And to describe that, I'll measure the distance of the box from somewhere down here and call that X. And I talk about what happens when we change X. It means only you move the doggone thing up and down. All right. Now, first, I would like to make a few uh, modifications from real bullets and two idealizations. The first is that the machine gun is very shaky and wobbly and that the bullets go in various directions, not just exactly straight on and bounce back. And they can ricochet off the edges of the slits, the slits rather, the holes in these armor plates. And finally, well, let's say for instance that the bullets have all the same speed or energy if you want, but that's not very important. But the most important idealization in which it differs from real bullets is I want these bullets to be absolutely indestructible. So that what we find in the box is not pieces of lead of some bullet that broke in half, but we get the whole bullet, please. So imagine indestructible bullets, or hard bullets and soft armor plate or something. <laughs> and now the first thing that we will notice about bullets is that the things that arrive come in lumps. When the energy comes, it's all in one bullet full of bang. If you count the bullets, there's one, two, three, four bullets. The things come in lumps. They're equal in size, we suppose, in this case. And when a thing comes into the box, it's either all in the box or it's not in the box. It comes in lumps. More. If I put up two boxes here, I never get two bullets in the boxes at the same time. Well, if the gun isn't going off too fast and I have enough time between the, you see, slow down the gun so they go off very slowly. Bing, 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 bing. Then put the two things here and look very quickly in the two boxes. You'll never get two bullets at the same time in the two boxes because a bullet is a single identifiable lump. I call that characteristic of the object that it comes in lumps. So the first thing about bullets is that they come in lumps. And now what I'm going to measure is how many bullets arrive here on the average in a long period of time. So you wait an hour and you count how many bullets are in the can, in the sand, and uh, average that. Now, uh, we call that if you want per, let's say we take a definite time like per hour and say the number of bullets that arrive per hour. And sometimes you could call that what's called the probability of arrival because it just gives the chance that a bullet going through this thing arrives in this particular box, at least it's proportional to the chance. One way to measure is to measure the average number of bullets that arrive over a period of time. Now the number of bullets that arrive in this box here will vary as I vary x. And I'm going to make a graph here in which I plot horizontally the number of bullets that I get if I hold this thing here for an hour. And I'll get a curve that will probably look more or less like this. 
Because when the bullet, when the box is behind one of these holes, it gets a lot of bullets, because, and ones that went through this hole, and otherwise it gets them that went through this hole, and if it's a little bit out of line, it doesn't get as many, they have to bounce a little off the edges of the hole, and so it disappears like this, and this is the number that we get in an hour when both holes are open, and I call that by an abbreviation N12, which merely means the number which arrive when number hole number one and hole number two are both open. Looks like that, sir. Now, I must insist that the number that we're plotting here is, doesn't come in lumps. You can have any size at once. For example, there can be two and a half bullets in an hour. In spite of the fact that the bullets come in lumps, what I mean by two and a half bullets in an hour is that if you run a long time, like 10 hours, you get 25 bullets. So it's on the average two and a half bullets. The N can have any size. It doesn't have to be in lumps because it's an average. I'm sure you're all familiar with the joke about the fact that the average family in the United States seems to have two and a half children. It doesn't mean that there's a half a child. In any family, whatever, the children come in lumps. <laughs> but nevertheless, when you take the average number per family, it, it can be any number whatsoever. And so this number N, which is the number that arrive in this container per hour on the average, need not be an integer. It can be a tenth which would mean under those circumstances that you have to wait on the average 10 hours, more or less, per bullet. So what we measure then is the probability of arrival, which is a technical measure, the probability of arrival, which is a technical term really for the average number that arrive in a given length of time. And now finally, if we go to analyze this curve, N12, we can interpret it very nicely. We can interpret it as a sum of two curves, which I will draw here. You see, that's why I need the blackboard, because I got several cases, so I draw two curves here. One which would represent what I call N1, the number which would come if hole number two is closed by another piece of armor plate in front, and so they all come through number one. And N2 would be the number that come through hole number two alone. So N1 is a number that comes through hole number one alone, and N2 is a number that comes through hole number two alone, those numbers being determined by closing the respective holes. And then we discover a very important law, which is that the number that arrived with both holes open is the number that arrived by coming through number one hole plus the number that comes through number two hole. And this proposition, the fact that all you have to do is add these two together, I call nice, or no interference. That is, what you get from the two the holes open is the same as you get by simply adding each hole separately. That's for bullets done. We're done with bullets. All right, I begin again. This time with water waves. Here is standing some kind of a big mass of stuff which is being shaken up and down. This is a long line of barges or jetties with a gap in the water in between. Perhaps it's better to do it with ripples than it is to do it with big ocean waves that sound more sensible. I wiggle my finger up and down here, and I have a little piece of wood here, and ripples start out here, and then I've arranged in a tank to put boards in the way here so that I have these two holes. And then I have this so-called detector, and then what I do with the detector, what the detector detects is how much the water is jiggling. For instance, I put a cork in the water and measure how it moves up and down, and what I'm going to measure, in fact, is the energy of the agitation of the cork, which is exactly proportional to the energy carried by the waves. 
Also, I forgot to say that this jiggling is made very regular and perfect so that the waves are all of the same spacing from one another. And then I'll describe what we get under those circumstances. For that, I first remark, well, let's see. Uh, first, we can measure the energy of the cork, but then another thing is important for light, uh, for uh, water waves, for waves, water waves, is that the thing that we're measuring can have any size at all. We're measuring the intensity of the waves or the energy in the cork. And if the waves are very quiet, if the fellow over here is only jiggling a little bit, then there'll be very little motion of the cork, and so on. No matter how much it is, it's proportional. So it uh, can have any size. It doesn't come in lumps. It's not all there or nothing. And what we're going to measure is the intensity of the waves, which would be precise if you want, is the energy generated by the waves at a point. And now what happens if we measure the intensity, which I'll draw on a third curve here, which I'll call I to remind you it's an intensity and not a number of particles of any kind, and I12 when both holes are open, is a curve that looks something like this. an interesting, complicated-looking curve, which is, ought to be symmetrical. I didn't do too badly, actually. <laughs> very complicated-looking curve. That is, if we put the thing in different places, we get a very, very different intensity, which varies very rapidly in a peculiar manner. And you're probably all familiar with the reason for that. The reason is that the ripples, as they come out of here, have crests and troughs spreading from here. And they have crests and troughs spreading from here. Now, if we're at a place which, say, is exactly in between these two things so that the, the two waves arrive at the same time. The crests will come on top of each other and there'll be plenty of jiggling, which is the exact opposite of this curve. <laughs> so I'll have to put, there should be another bump. <laughs> we have a lot of jiggling right in dead center. On the other hand, if I were to move to some point here, since I'm further from hole two than hole one, it takes a little longer for the waves to come from two than from one. And when one has a crest arriving, the crest hasn't quite reached there yet from two. In fact, it's a trough from two. So the water tries to move up and it tries to move down from the influences of the waves coming from the two holes. And the net result is it doesn't move at all, or practically not at all. And so we have these low bumps at that place. And then if you move still further over, you get enough delay that when a crest is here, this other crest is in fact one whole wave behind. So in fact, it's a crest that is, two crests are coming on top of each other, but not the same crest, so to speak. The fourth crest from here and the fifth crest from there on top. So you get a, a big one again, then a small one, a big one, small one, depending upon the way the crests and troughs interfere, as we say. The word interference, again, is used in science in a funny way because uh, we'll have what we call constructive interference. When they both interfere here, it makes it stronger. Well, they call it interference anyway, but the very important thing is that I12 is not the same as I1 plus I2, and we say it shows interference. Yes, interference. That's a funny term we use it constructive and destructive interference. I didn't mention what I1 and I2 look like, but we can find out by closing this 
for instance, to find I1. The intensity that you get here, if the hole is closed, is simply the waves from one hole for which there's no interference, and that's this curve. N1 is the same as I1, and the same way otherwise I2, and this curve is quite different than the sum of these two. As a matter of fact, the mathematics of this curve is rather an interesting one. What is true is this, that the height of the water when both holes are open is equal to the height that you would get from number one open plus the height that you get from number two open. Thus, if it's a trough, the height from two is negative and cancels out the height from one. So you can represent it by talking about the height of the water. But it turns out that the intensity in any case, for instance, when both holes are open, is not the same as the height, but it's proportional to the square of the height. And it's because of this fact that we're dealing with the squares that we get these very interesting curves. All right, now, we erase the machinery and start over. This time, we start with electrons. We have a filament here, tungsten plate, holes in a tungsten plate, and for a detector, any electrical system which is sufficiently sensitive to pick up the charge of an electron arriving uh, with whatever energy the source has. Or if you would prefer, we could use photons, and this is a black paper with a hole in it, two holes in another sheet of black paper. Paper isn't very good because the fibers don't make a sharp hole, so use something better. And here, for a detector, a photomultiplier that can detect the individual photons arriving. Now, what happens with either case, and I'll discuss only the electron case, the other case is exactly the same, the case with photon, is this. First, that what we receive in this electrical detector with a sufficiently powerful amplifier behind it are clicks. Click, 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 and so on with the source here. Lumps. Absolutely lumps. When the click comes, it's a certain size, and the size is the same if you turn the source weaker, the clicks come further apart, but it's the same size click. If you turn it up, they go quicker, quicker, and it jams the amplifier. So you have to turn it down enough that there aren't too many clicks for the machinery that you're using to detect. Next, if you will to put up another detector here and listen to both of them, you never get two clicks at the same time, at least if the source is weak enough so that because of the precision with which you measure at the same time. If you cut down the intensity of the source so they come few and far between, they never come a click in both detectors. So that means that the thing which is coming comes in lumps. It has a definite size and it only comes to one place at a time. All right, so for electrons, or for photons, we'll just use electrons. It comes in lumps. And therefore, what we can do is the same thing as we did with the bullets. We measure how many come, we measure the probability of arrival. What we do is we hold the detector in a certain place. Actually, if we wanted to, although it's expensive, we could put detectors all over at the same time and make the whole curve simultaneously. But let's suppose we put it in a certain place and we measure at the end of an hour how many electrons came and we average it. Uh, by the way, if I put detectors all along the back here, when one comes, it comes into one, but not from others. It just one goes off, and the other goes off, and it goes off, and that one goes off, so on. Just like with bullets. And we measure then the probability of arrival of the electrons. And what do we get? The number of electrons that arrive. The same kind of an N12 as before. This is what we get for N12.
And one, two, is this what we get with both holes open. And that's the phenomenon of nature, that she produces the curve, which is the same as you would get from an interference of waves. But she produces a curve for what? Not for the energy in a wave, but for the probability of arrival of one of these lumps. The mathematics is simple. You change I to N, and you have to change H to something else, which is new. You call it something, because it's not the height of anything. But in order, this curve has a simple mathematical form. There's an A, which can be represented as an A1 plus an A2, which we call a probability amplitude, because we don't know what it means. Which to arrive from hole one, plus the probability amplitude to arrive from hole two, and you add the two together to get the total probability amplitude to arrive, and square it. Just direct imitation of what happens with the wave, because we've got to get the same curve out, so we use the same mathematics. Let's find out, I'd better check on one point, though, about the interference, I forgot to say. What happens if we close one of the holes? Let's try to analyze this interesting curve, which now, for electrons, I erase all the stuff with the light. Well, everything with light is erased. And now we're talking about electrons. This curve isn't important in our case. This is the number which arrives. Now, we would like to analyze this curve. And we try this. We say maybe it comes, we can analyze this by thinking that the electrons come through this hole or through the other. So we can close one hole and measure how many come through hole number one, and we get that curve. Or we can close this hole and measure how many come through hole number two, and we get that curve. And these two added together is not this, and so this is not the same as N1 plus N2, and it does show interference. It shows interference. And in fact, the mathematics is given by this funny formula that the probability of arrival is the square of an amplitude, which itself is the sum of two pieces. Now, nobody, the question is, how can that come about? That when they go through hole one, they would be distributed this way. When they go through hole two, they would be distributed that way. How could it be? that when both holes are open, you don't get the sum of the two. In instance, if I hold the detector at this point here, I get practically nothing. If I close one of the holes, I get plenty. If I close the other hole, I get something. If I leave both holes open, I get nothing. If I let them go through both holes, I don't come anymore. Or take the point in the center. You can show that that's higher than the sum, than it was in the other case, than the sum of these two. I get more here when both holes are open than I would get with either one of the two closed. Now, you might think that if you were clever enough, you could argue that they have some way of going around through the holes back and forth, and they do something complicated, or it splits in half and goes through the two holes, and so forth, in order to explain this phenomenon. Uh, nobody, however, has succeeded to get uh, an explanation of this that's satisfactory, because the mathematics in the end is so very simple, the curve is so very simple. I will summarize then by saying that electrons arrive in lumps, like particles. But the probability arrival of arrival of these lumps is determined like the intensity of waves would be. And it is in this sense that the electron behaves, as you might say, sometimes like a particle and sometimes like a wave. It behaves in these two different ways at the same time. And that's all there is to say. I give a mathematical description to figure out the probability of arrival 
of elect funds under any circumstances and so on, and that would, in principle, be the end of the lecture, except that there are a number of subtleties involved in the fact that nature works this way. There's a number of peculiar things. And uh, I would like to discuss those peculiarities because they may not be self-evident at this point. So uh, to discuss the subtleties, we begin by discussing a proposition uh, which we would have thought to use since these things are lost. Since what comes is always one complete, which I'll call an electron, one complete lump, one complete electron, we will, it's obvious that it's reasonable <laughs> that either an electron arrives or goes, let's say, that either an electron goes through hole number one or it goes through hole number two. That seems like it goes through hole number two. That seems very obvious that it can't do anything else if it's a lump. And I'm going to discuss this proposition, so I have to give it a name. I'll call it Proposition A. Now, we've already discussed a little bit what happens with Proposition A. If it were true that an electron either goes through hole number one or it goes through hole number two, then the total number which arrived here would have to be analyzable as a sum of two contributions. The total number which arrive here will be the number that come here via hole one plus the number that come via hole two. And since this curve cannot easily be analyzed as a sum of two pieces in such a nice manner, and since, every, since the experiments which determine how many would have arisen would have arrived, <laughs> if only hole number one were open, don't give the, con the re result that this number is the sum of these two, it is obvious that we should conclude that this proposition is false. It is not true that the electron either comes through hole number one or hole number two. Maybe it divides itself in half temporarily and so on. So proposition A is false. That's logic. Unfortunately, or otherwise, we can test logic by experiment. And so we just have to do to find out whether it's true or not that the electrons come through hole one and hole two, or maybe they go around through both holes and they split up and so on. We have to do, all we have to do is watch them. Watch them, we need light. So we put back here behind the holes a source of light. It's very intense light. Light is scattered by electrons that is bounced off electrons. And you, in other words, you can see electrons if they go by if the light's strong enough. So we stand back here and we look to see whether we see when the electron is counted here a flash, or have seen the moment before the electrons count here, a flash behind hole one or a flash behind hole two or maybe a sort of a half flash in each place at the same time because we're going to find out now how it goes by looking. Well, you turn on the light and look. And lo, you discover that you see flashes behind either one hole or the other hole every time you get a count here. Every time there's a count here, you see a flash behind number one or behind number two. What you see is that the electron comes 100% complete through hole one or through hole two when you look. Kind of a paradox. Well, let's squeeze nature into some kind of a difficulty here. i show you what we're going to do, see? <laughs> we're going to keep the light on. We're going to watch. And you're going to count. We're going to count how many electrons come through. And we're going to make two columns. We're, I'll watch the holes very carefully while you please count how many are arriving in the detector. <laughs> All right, you say, one arrived. I said, I saw that when it went through hole number one. 
Well, we put here a, we put here two columns, which is column one for number one hole and number two hole. And every time you get one, you tell me you got one. I have seen it, of course. And I say either number one or two. The first one was one. What's the next one? Number two. All right. Number two. Number two. Number one. So, hmm? so as we watch the electrons, as I watch the electrons, for every one that you count, I can separate them experimentally into two columns. Them or whatever arrived via hole one, and those, I know the English is right, I'm just trying to, that arrived <laughs> via hole two. So the number, the total number that arrived, well, first, what does this column look like when you add it all together for different positions here, which is just the number that is supposed to come through one? I watch behind one, and what do I see? I see this curve. That number column is distributed this way. Just like we thought when we closed hole two. It works the same way whether we're looking or not. If we close hole two, we get the same distribution in those that arrive as if we are watching. And the, likewise, the number that in this column that is supposed to arrive via hole number two is also the simple curve. Now look, the total number which arrives has to be the total number. I'm just counting little marks. It has to be the sum of this number plus that number. The total number which arrives absolutely has to be the sum of these two. It has to be distributed this way. When I said it was distributed this way, it's distributed this way. <laughs> it really is, of course, it has to be. It is, it's distributed this way. <laughs> if then we mark with a prime the results when a light is lit, prime means with a light lit, then we find N1 prime is practically the same as N1 without the light, and N2 prime is almost the same as N2. But the number that we see when the light is on is not is equal, is equal to the number that we see through one plus the number that we see through two. This is the result that we get when the light is on. In other words, we get a different answer whether I turn on the light or not. If I have the light turned on, this is the distribution which you measure over here. If I turn off the light, this is the distribution which you measure over here. Turn on the light, this is the answer. Turn off the light, that's the answer. See, nature's squeezed out. <laughs> now, we could say then that the light affects the result. If the light is on, you get a different answer than if the light is off. If you want to, you can say the light affects, it does affect. In fact, we found this by this experiment, we get a difference with the light on and off. Light affects the behavior of electrons. If you want to talk about the motion of the electrons through here, which is a little inaccurate, you can. You can say that, that the light affects the motion so that those which might have arrived at the maximum are somehow been deviated or kicked by the light and arrive at the minimum. Instead, such smoothing the curve to produce this thing. You see, electrons are very delicate. Although when you're looking at a baseball and you shine light on it, it doesn't make any difference. The baseball goes the same way. Electrons are very flimsy, very delicate. And when you shine a light on them, a little puff on the electron, it knocks them about a bit. <laughs> and instead of doing that, they do this, because you turn the light on so strong. You hit them with a hammer. It's not just a delicate thing, like when you're looking at, with a base, at a baseball with light. They are hit them with a hammer. But you use, you turn up the light too strong. Turn it weaker and weaker and weaker until it's very dim. And then use very deep, careful detector that can see very dim light. And look with the dim light. Now, as the light gets dimmer and dimmer, you can't expect with very, very, very weak light to, to uh, affect the electron.
so completely as to change the pattern 100% from this pattern to this pattern. As the light gets weaker and weaker and weaker, somehow it should get more and more like no light at all. And how then does this turn into that? Well, it turns out that light is not like a wave of water, but light also comes in particle-like character called photon. And as you turn down the intensity of the light, you're not turning down the effect, you're turning down the number of photon particle-like things that are coming out of the source. So as I turn down the light, I'm getting fewer and fewer photons. The least I can scatter from an electron is one photon, and if I have too few photons, well, sometimes the electron will get through, and it just happened, there wasn't enough light, there was no photon coming by, I didn't see it. So a very weak light doesn't mean a small disturbance, it just means a few photons. And what happens is that I have to invent a third column. You see, you get a click over here. I say, I saw that one, that was in number one hole. This was behind hole number two. Then another column says, sorry, I didn't see that. There wasn't enough light to give a photon at that time, so there must be a third column under didn't see. <laughs> and when the light is very strong, there are very few in there. And when the light is very weak, most of them end in there. So that there are three columns, this one, this one, and sometimes in here. Now you can guess what happens. The ones I do see are distributed this way. The ones I didn't see are distributed that way. <laughs> and as I turn the light weaker and weaker, well, I see less and less of them with greater and greater fraction are not seen. And a, the actual curve, in any case, is a sub of a mixture of this and this. And as the light gets weaker so that fewer and fewer are seen, it gets more and more like that in a continuous fashion. So. If, in this case, if the electrons are not seen and nothing bounced off the light under those circumstances, you get this complicated pattern for those electrons which were not seen. The ones in the column didn't see are exactly distributed in this complicated way, and the other two columns are in these two ways here. Now, you say, I got another way to measure whether, which hole it goes through, and I'm sorry I haven't got enough time to discuss a large number of different inventions that you might have to find out which hole the electron went through and what happens in each case. Uh, it always turns out, however, that it's impossible to arrange the light in any way so that you can tell through which hole the thing is going without disturbing the pattern of, of arrival of the electrons from this form to this form, without destroying the interference. And not only light, but anything else. You use neutrinos, you use anything. There's a principle that's impossible to, to do it. You can't. You can, if you want, invent a way to tell which hole the electron's going through. Then it turns out it's going through one or the other. But some, if you try to make that instrument so that at the same time it doesn't disturb the motion of the electrons, then what happens is you get back. You can't tell anymore which one it goes through, and you get this. If you can tell, you get this. Heisenberg noticed when he discovered the laws of quantum mechanics that the new laws of nature that he discovered could only be consistent if there was some basic limitation to our experimental abilities that had not been previously recognized. In other words, you can't experimentally be as delicate as you wish. And he proposed his uncertainty principle, which, states, which stated in terms of our experiment is the following. He stated it in another way, but they're exactly equivalent. You can get from one to the other, but unfortunately I haven't time to explain that. But he, in our experiment, his uncertainty principle would be stated in this manner. It is impossible to design any apparatus whatsoever to determine which hole the electron passes. I mean, one that succeeds in determining which hole the electron passes, passes, which 
through which hole the electron, which can determine through which hole the electron passes. That will not at the same time disturb the electron enough to destroy the interference pattern. And no one has found a way around this. And I'm sure you're all itching with inventions as to methods of detecting which hole the electron went through. But if each one of them is analyzed carefully, you'll find out there's something the matter with it. And that if, without disturbing the electron, you think you could do it. But it turns out there's always something the matter and you can account for the difference in the patterns due to the disturbance of the instruments used to determine through which hole the electron comes. Now, this, therefore, is a basic characteristic of nature and tells us something about everything. If a new particle is found tomorrow, the kaon, actually it's already been found, something, give it a name, let's say a kaon, and I use kaons to interact with electrons to determine which hole the electron is going through, I already know ahead of time, I hope, enough about uh, the behavior of the kaon to say that it cannot be of such a type that I could tell through which hole the electron would go without at the same time producing a disturbance on the electron that changed the pattern from here to here. So that even, so that the uncertainty principle is used as a general principle to guess ahead at many of the characteristics of unknown objects. They are limited in their character. Well then, Let's go back. What about this proposition A? <laughs> Does it go even through one hole or the other? Or not? Well, uh, physicists have a convention, a way of avoiding the pitfalls which exist, and they make their game, their rules of thinking, as follows. That if you have an apparatus which is capable of telling which hole the electron goes through, and you can have such apparatus, then one can say that it either goes through one hole or the other. And it does, when you look, it always is going through one hole or the other, when you look. But when you do not try to determine, or you have no disturbance, no apparatus there to determine through which hole the thing goes, under those circumstances, you cannot say that it either goes through one hole or the other. You can always say it, provided you stop thinking immediately and don't make any deduction from it. We prefer not to say it, rather than to stop thinking at the moment. In other words, when we don't look, we can't say through which hole it's going, but if you try to look to see, you find it always goes through one hole or the other. Still, to conclude that it goes either through one hole or the other when you're not looking is to produce an error in, in prediction. And that is the logical tightrope on which we have to walk if we wish to interpret nature. This proposition that I'm talking about is more general uh, it's not just for two holes. It's a general proposition reads something like this, that the probability of any event in an ideal experiment, that's just that means that once everything is specified as well as it can be, the probability of an event is the square of something, which I call A here, is the, called the probability amplitude. And, what, and when an event can occur in several alternative ways, the probability amplitude, this A number, is the sum of the A's for each of the various alternatives. And finally, if an experiment is performed which is capable of determining which alternative is taken, the probability of the event is the sum of the probabilities for each alternative. That is, you lose the interference. Now, the question is, how does it really work? Uh, what machinery is actually producing this thing? Well, nobody can knows any machinery. Nobody can give you a deeper explanation of this phenomenon than I have given. That is a description of it. They can give you a wider explanation in the sense that they can do more examples to show how it's impossible to tell which hole it goes through and at the same time not destroy the interference pattern. 
They can give a wider class of experiments than just the two-slit interference experiment and so on, but they're all just repeating the same thing to drive it in. It's not any deeper, it's only wider. The mathematics can be made more precise. You could mention that they're complex numbers instead of real numbers and a couple of other minor points which have nothing to do with the main idea. And the deep mystery is what I described. And no one can go any deeper today, but only wider. Now, I mentioned probabilities in this calculation. What we're calculating here, this curve, is the probability of arrival of an electron. The question is, is there any way to determine where it really arrives? We are not averse to using the theory of probability, that is calculating odds, when a situation is very complicated. You throw up a die, and it spins so many times. And the air with the various resistors and atoms and all this complicated business that we're perfectly willing to allow that we don't know enough details, and so we calculate the odds that the thing will come this way or that way. But here, what we're proposing, is it not, is that there be probability all the way back at the fundamental laws, that in the fundamental laws of physics, there are odds. For example, suppose that I have an experiment so set up that with the light out, I get this interference situation and know that then I say that with the light on, I can't predict through which hole it will go. I only know that each time I look, it'll be one hole or the other. But there is no way to predict ahead of time through which hole it goes. The future, in other words, is unpredictable. It is impossible to predict in any way from any information ahead of time through which the thing, hole, the thing will go or which hole it will be seen behind. That means that physics has kind of given up if the original purpose was, and everybody thought it was, to know enough that in given the situation, you can predict what's going to happen next. Given the circumstances, you can predict what happened. Here are the circumstances. Source, strong light source, tell me which hole, behind which hole will I see the electron. You say, well, the reason you can't tell through which hole you're going to see the electron is it's determined by some very complicated things back here. If I knew enough about that electron, it has internal wheels, internal gears, and so forth, that the fact, and that this is what determines through which hole it goes. So it's 50-50 probability, because like a die, it's set sort of at random. And that if I were to have studied it carefully enough, your physics is incomplete. If you get a complete enough physics, then you'll be able to predict through which hole it goes. That's the hidden variable theory, so-called. Well, that's not possible. It is not due to a lack of detailed knowledge that we cannot make the prediction, because I said that if I didn't turn on the light, I should get this interference pattern. If I have a circumstance in which I get that interference pattern, then it is impossible to analyze it in terms of saying it goes through here or here. Because that curve is so simple, mathematically a different thing than the contribution of this and this as probability. So if this were, if it were possible for you to have determined through which hole it was going to go if I had the light on. The fact that I have the light on hasn't got anything to do with it. Whatever gears there are back here that you observed, which permitted you to tell me whether it was going to go through one or two, you could have observed if I had the light off. And therefore, you could have told me with the light off which hole, each time an electron goes, which hole it's going to go through. But if you can do this, then that curve would have to be represented as a sum of those that go through there and those that go through there, and it ain't. 
And therefore, it's impossible to have any information ahead of time as to which hole it's going to go through when the light is out or when the light is on or out in a circumstance where the experiment is set up there can produce this interference pattern. So it is not a lack of unknown gears a lack of internal complications that makes nature have probability in it. It seems to be in some sense intrinsic. Someone has said it this way, nature herself doesn't know uh, which way the electron is going to go. A philosopher once said, pompously, it is necessary for the very existence of science that the same conditions always produce the same result. Well, they don't. You can set up the electrons in any way. I mean, you set up the circumstance here in the same conditions every time, and you cannot predict behind which hole you'll see the electron. They don't, and yet the science goes on in spite of him, although the same conditions don't produce the same results. That makes us unhappy that we can't predict exactly what'll happen. Incidentally, you can make a circumstance which is very dangerous and serious, and man must know and still can't predict. For instance, we could cook up, I know, we'd rather not, but we could cook up a scheme by which we arrange photo cells so that if it sees the electron, one electron is going to go through. If we see it behind hole number one, we set off the atomic bomb and start World War III. If we go see it behind hole two, we have just to make peace feelers and delay the war a little longer. Then the thing is that the future of man would then be dependent upon something which no amount of science can predict. The world is the future is unpredictable. What is necessary for the very existence of science and so forth, and what the characteristics of nature are, are not to be determined by pompous preconditions. They're to be determined, they are determined always by the material with which we work, by nature herself. We look and we see what we're going to find, what we find, and we cannot say ahead of time, successfully, what it's going to look like. The most reasonable possibilities turn out often not to be the situation. What is necessary for the very existence of science is just the ability to experiment, the honesty in reporting results. The results must be reported without somebody saying what they'd like the results to have had been. And finally, an important thing is the intelligence to interpret the results, but important point about this intelligence is that it, must not, it should not be sure ahead of time about what must be. Now, it can be prejudiced and say, that's very unlikely. I don't like that. Prejudice is different than absolute certainty. I don't mean absolute prejudice, just bias. But not strict bias, see, not, not complete prejudice. As long as you're biased, it doesn't make any difference because if the fact is true, there will be a perpetual accumulation of experiments that perpetually annoy you until they cannot be disregarded any longer. Only can be disregarded if you're absolutely sure ahead of time of some precondition that science has to have. In fact, it is only necess it is necessary for the very existence of science that minds exist which do not allow that nature must satisfy some preconceived conditions like those of our philosophy.
Yes, Santoshi, you want to say something? 